Good afternoon, folks. Hello, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, day two of our 2016 Audio Description Project Conference. Oh, look, they're sitting in different places here. Now, I, I won't know who anybody is. Oh, my lordy. No, that's not true. Um, I just want to do one quick thing, which is simply we have uh, a new uh, participant in the conference with us, and I want to, uh, just like I made each one of you introduce yourself, uh, I want Mark to just say who he is, where he's from, and just one or two words, uh, Mark, uh, about what you're, you're all about, and then we'll get going with this panel. Sure. I'm Mark Lasser. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and uh, sorry I couldn't be here yesterday. I just had a little trouble getting in. Um, I uh, am a blind person of, of two years and uh, very interested in audio description. It, it was one of the things that really turned my life around. Um, when I lost my eyesight um, very suddenly, um, this gave me back a whole piece of my life that I, had, I felt I had lost and until I knew about it, I, I didn't know I would ever have it back. Um, and the other thing uh, I should share is that I am a delegate to the Democratic National Convention this summer in Philadelphia, one of four blind delegates that we know of, and um, you know, very much looking forward to advocating for um, you know, the, the issues of, of described uh, film and television um, and as much as we can do that. I'm sure we'll be hearing from Mark about the convention a little bit, <laughs> the, the other convention that has in the DNC, if you will. So with that, I'm going to turn things over to Susan Glass and JoLynn Bailey-Page, who are co-chairing uh, this panel. Um, we have uh, Jason Stark is on the line with us. Hey, Jason. Hello, Joel. There you are. Jason, I, we, we, talk, we talked about you yesterday, Jason. He's the director of the Described and Captioned Media Program. But I'm going to turn it over to Sue to mention everybody else and, and uh, get the order of things going. Okay. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it is so good to see everybody here. I, I just want to reiterate something I said yesterday, which is that I, I love the size of this group because we've already become friendly and shared details that have brought us together as a community of people who want to see the world together in so, so many wonderful ways. Um, this uh, particular panel that JoLynn and I are chairing is called um, Teachers and Audio Description. And um, the, we, we know from a lot of research um, done um, by the American Foundation for the Blind and many other organizations and by description, caption media program, yay Jason, that description enhances literacy for everybody and especially for young people. Um, JoLynn and I had that experience firsthand with a mother who saw the world in descriptions and brought everything to life to us in language from flowers to music to books, to pictures, everything had a word that went with it. Um, if you think about your infancy, when we are children, we know that we become literate, meaning world literate, language literate, through our senses. And if you have a visual impairment, from the time you are pushed in a carriage as an infant, you are picking up a lot of information about your culture from your mother and father talking about their socks, 
whether you want Cheerios, <laughs> um, the telephone ringing, there's a, there's a whole world. And so uh, audio description creates its own very, very special literacy. Um, this afternoon, we have an interesting panel of describers for you, of, of, of teachers for you, each of who teach in a different way, who are going to show, um, or share, I should say, how description enhances habits in young, visually impaired, blind, and every other student. Habits such as awareness, focus, attention, analysis, communication. It's one thing to skim your life. It's another thing to become literate in those particular talents. And so with us this afternoon um, to, to share their, their, um, their expertise, uh, we have Kim Charlson, who is um, president of the American Council of the Blind and also librarian, main librarian at Perkins School for the Blind. Uh, we have Jason Stark, who is CEO and director, um, leader of description caption um, media program. And he's going to share with us how description and captioning have enhanced literacy for, uh, for children. Um, Carla Hayes, uh, who runs her own business called LanguaLearn, she is a foreign language teacher of students of all ages. She teaches French and Spanish and Italian, and she's, she'll tell you more about her work. Um, but she uses audio description um, in her teaching of her students. And the point is that there is a direct correlation between what students hear and how they connect that to the visual medium and how they then translate it back into the literacy experiences of their lives and culture. And so uh, with, without further ado, uh, we will begin our panel today by hearing from Kim Charlson. Jason is going first. Um, there you go. Sorry. Take it away. <laughs> we changed her name to Kim Charlson. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you guys today. And um, actually, my, my presentation goes um, along very nicely with the introductory words that, uh, that Susan mentioned. I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about um, the difference between hearing and listening and how students can um, broaden their listening skills to um, improve literacy. Um, of course, while a complex process, hearing is basically automatic passive activity. Um, it's very possible to hear sounds without consciously engaging in the process. So students need to become active listeners. Um, they must consider many factors when interpreting messages, um, including those presented in um, description. And these include context, personal experience and feelings, facial cues, pitch, loudness, and rhythm. And there are many reasons why it's beneficial for students to become active listeners. 
Um, I've got three of them here. Um, the first one is successful time management. Students with good listening skills generally follow directions correctly the first time they're given. Uh, this means they spend more time on task. Um, active listening skills enable students to use their time more wisely. Um, they don't have to spend as much time asking questions, clarifying information, or fixing mistakes made as a re result of passive listening. Um, the second benefit is educational success. Students who are active listeners use new information more productively. They're better equipped to access prior knowledge, which allows them to make connections with new information. It also enables them to decide how to use this information. Um, they develop a framework for understanding new content and also whether or not that content is relevant. As a result, they're much better at sifting through all that information they receive and determining what the main points are in a message and what are um, unimportant details. Um, because good listeners tap into their prior knowledge when hearing new information, they can more readily integrate new ideas. Students who um, use active listening strategies also exhibit better concentration and memory. Active listeners filter information, connect to what's important, they use it, and they store it in a meaningful way. Uh, consequently, they often have um, a better grasp on academic content than peers who listen more passively. And in terms of face-to-face -face communication, um, active listeners um, have improved interpersonal success. Um, active listeners tend to have more successful interpersonal relationships because their active attention supports the speaker and helps build his or her confidence. Um, this includes teachers. Um, because speakers know they are fully being listened to, they feel valued. Um, this promotes feelings of trust and respect, in turn makes the speaker more uh, likely to cooperate. Um, when encouraging feelings of respect, active listeners have the ability to persuade and successfully negotiate. Uh, students who are active listening, students who use active listening skills are better able to determine when miscommunications have occurred. Um, they're also more successful at gleaning additional information from their speaker. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the Listening is Learning initiative. Um, DCMP has partnered with ACP um, on this initiative, which encourages the use of description as a tool to teach students the skills of becoming active, engaged listeners. Um, using the premise that context-relevant description of visual content improves learning, um, it isn't a stretch to suggest that description can aid in the acquisition and development of important learning skills, including language development. Of course, listening is one of the first steps in uh, learning one's primary or secondary language. Um, auditory learners, an estimated 20 to 30% of students retain information most effectively when it isn't conveyed through sound. New media literacy, listening is one building block in the ability to access, analyze, evaluate, and produce communication in many forms, and also writing and speaking. Because good description is succinct, and extremely content, content relevant, listening to description can aid students' written and spoken communication skills. Description provides excellent examples of descriptive writing. 
So through this initiative, we tout the benefits um, of the use of described media with all students, um, those with and without visual impairment. Um, we have printed material kits, which include posters, brochures, certificates of participation, um, and masks that are available for teachers to use. Uh, we've developed a lesson guide, which includes tips on how to use described media in the classroom to teach listening skills for improving comprehension and writing skills. The listening is learning mascot uh, is the fennec fox, which is a cute little three pound dust colored fox from the Sahara Desert. Uh, the fennec fox is well known for its large ears, which can be about half as long as its body. So it has extraordinary hearing, sense enough to hear prey moving underground. So it's the perfect mascot to remind students about the importance of using their listening skills. Um, as we send out these kits, um, we do a follow-up survey to teachers um, requesting information, and we're thrilled, but not surprised to report that uh, in the past several years, 100% of respondents agree that the use of described media leads to higher comprehension of content and concepts than have occurred uh, with using media without description. And also, 100% of respondents reported that listening to description leads to improved literacy and language skills. Um, again, that was really no surprise to us, but it was great to get um, that information documented. Um, so it's great, description increases literacy and language skills. And of course, it's critically important for students who have visual impairments. So where can teachers find educational media description? Well, the DCMP, of course. Uh, the DCMP offers about 6,000 educational accessible media titles available on demand. Teachers, parents, and others who work with students with a sensory disability qualify for this free service. So media items are available via DVD and streaming with support for virtually all devices. The DCMP supports set-top boxes such as Roku and soon Apple TV. Uh, we have an iOS app and working on development of native support for Android, Android and Fire TV. Um, in addition to the on-demand accessible media, CMP offers a learning center of articles on various topics related to accessibility and accessible uh, media, including a clearinghouse of relevant information from collaborators such as ACB and P, AFB, Family Connect, Gallaudet University, NCAM, DeCapta, and, and many others. Um, I'm sure part of uh, the discussion during the time is going to talk about guidelines. Uh, the DCMP provides the description key, which is a set of guidelines for how to effectively add description to media. And um, the description key was originally authored in 2008 in partnership with AFB and included an expert panel, which Joel was a member. Um, consisting of, of several people um, probably there in attendance. Um, I'm really excited um, Carla is on the panel and um, believe some other representatives from the American Association of Teachers are there um, in the audience. Um, I definitely welcome um, fill out an, an enrollment form. We'd be glad to be able to provide accessible media to your students. That's it. That's great. Excellent. There you go. Okay. Excellent. Good. Thank and you so Jason, much. Jason, if you can stay with us please for the do. hour and a half, please do. Because we'd, we'd Absolutely. love. Absolutely. 
Yeah, we'd love Great. to have questions and have them be able to talk with everyone here, so all the panelists. Um, I have been remiss. Um, Jason, thank you for helping me. I'd like to welcome all colleagues from the American Association of Blind Teachers. Could you guys clap if you're in the room? Not as many of, oh well, we gotta go grab some more. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's good. All right, next we have Kim Charlson, president of ACB and very important person at Perkins Library who's gonna tell you a lot about audio description and education. Here comes Kim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm sorry I missed yesterday, but I hope to spend a little more time and tomorrow with you at the conference. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that I am a huge supporter of audio description. Um, believe in it, love it personally, um, it's a crusade for me to make sure that other blind and visually impaired people love it and use it. <laughs> so, um, so first I'm going to talk about the, the more traditional um, teachers and audio description um, in some of my experiences there, but teachers also teach adults. So I'm going to follow up by talking a little bit about some of my observations about introducing audio description to adults in varying degrees of where they are with their vision loss. So first of all, um, Susan indicated that I am the director of the Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library. So that is the NLS Regional Library for the state of Massachusetts. I'm responsible for the provision of library services for about 25,000 people in Massachusetts and some surrounding states. And one of the services that we provide as part of our library program that's beyond the scope of the NLS program is audio, loaned audio described DVDs. So it's probably another panel, another time to talk about some of the philosophical issues around loaning audio-described DVDs, such as the fact that it drives me crazy that I have to put a sticker on the DVD that says, this DVD does not have audio navigation. You may need sighted assistance to begin to play it. So that is the reality of what we have right now with DVDs. But a library doesn't say, well, we're not going to collect and grow a collection of audio-described DVDs until they're accessible. If we did that, we would only have one or two instead of uh, several thousand. So, um, so we have to work with that, but thank goodness for the CVAA and some of the developments that are coming down the road to make that problem hopefully less of a problem in the not-too-distant future. So at Perkins, my role, because um, I'm a department of Perkins, they have a contract with the, with the state to provide the library service, so I'm a, de a department head at Perkins. And what I've, one thing I've tried to do with the students who attend Perkins is it's great to have a group of kids that are right there, all together, all at once, where we can do programming and activities. Because one of the obstacles we face with 
introducing kids or the um, young describers, critics, um, film, you know, reviews that we've been trying to work on for several years is it's so hard to find the kids because most of them are in public school and they're the only kid in their public school and there's an itinerant TVI, teacher of the visually impaired, who may be working with them but then it's hard to reach them so it's hard to reach the kids and it's hard to deliver our message so that's why we're trying to embark on some different strategies to try to figure out how to communicate with kids. And one of, one of my thoughts about communicating with kids is we're going to have to do it the way kids communicate these days, which isn't exactly the way I think most of us communicate. It's not texting and Twitter and Facebook. and That's how we're going to reach those kids, most likely, because they're, they're doing it inherently. They just are doing it, things I think are kind of hard, they're like, zoom, 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 and they're done. You know, they, <laughs> they did it. <laughs> I'm like, how'd you do that? <laughs> so, um, but I've had the opportunity for the last about three years to partner with the, um, the secondary department of Perkins, which is the junior, senior high program. That's about 65 kids who are blind or visually impaired from the age of 14 to 22. And working with their teachers in their English language, language arts um, instructors and their theater arts instructor, um, we've collaborated with a local theater right in Watertown, about half a mile away. It's a professional level theater, the new repertory theater. And they have a traveling um, play program that they take on the road to schools for a fee. And the fee is $1,000. So it's a significant fee. But um, the library and the secondary program, we split that fee. And working with New Rep, they provide an audio describer for the play that they're taking on tour. So we started this on tour program as a way to teach kids about audio description because I don't think you just hand people a headset and say, this is audio described, have a nice time. You've got to, especially with kids, I think, you've got to instruct them on kind of expectations. This is what's going to happen. This is how the equipment works. This is what you're going to expect. I think you're going to like it. Um, and that has proven to be helpful, to have preliminary instruction first before we take them to their first audio described activity. So working in collaboration with a live theater, they come in and they do plays um, that are part of the curriculum. So they generally are classic plays. Um, a lot of Shakespeare, there's usually one Shakespeare a year. We do, the, we do two of these performances. And, um, and then the other one is, is it could be something like um, Of Mice and Men or um, Old Man in the Sea, just other classics that, that they, they produce and they're well done. And afterwards there's a talk back session. The d even the actors are also introduced to the audio description because if you've never been in a theater with 
75 people sitting in the audience, and usually, especially in a school setting, um, before the play starts, it's chaos. The kids are yelling, screaming, waving their arms around, talking to each other. But when the Perkins kids all get together in the auditorium and the pre-show starts, it's totally silent because they're listening to the pre-show. And, and people will come in and they go, why are they all quiet? <laughs> well, well, they're listening to the pre-show. They're learning about the stage and the setting. And, and, and they're quiet. They're not talking to each other. They're going shh to each other, making sure that they don't bother one another. So it, it's kind of cool to see them advocate for that, for each other. Like, you know, don't make noise. Occasionally, we'll get a student who, who doesn't like audio description. And those are usually low vision students, maybe with a little bit of um, autism spectrum disorder. They sometimes they just don't manage the extra stimulus from the audio description as well with their vision. But that's fairly rare. And I found that these kids are then taking their expectations of what audio description is and what it gives them and then in their recreational time, what they're doing is saying, I want an audio described DVD. I want to go to the movies this weekend and see audio described movie. So they're learning about how audio description is out there. Um, I want to watch Netflix with audio description. So they're covering all the bases and they're asking for it. They're demanding, you know, why don't we have Netflix on the Perkins campus? Well, gosh, I guess we could arrange that somehow. So um, it's been really good to see that and accompanying some of those shows with um, touch tour, tactile experiences, and the talkbacks have really broadened the, the spectrum for kids and um, given them a whole lot of expectation about audio description that I think is great. So let me shift with it to adults a little bit because I do a lot of work with adults as well. And I find it very different to work with adults. Um, I have, um, as I mentioned, the, the collection of audio described DVDs. And we have over a thousand titles because we were given a special dispensation to convert all the WGBH titles, um, partly because we're neighbors and we partnered on a lot of things. Um, I was given the opportunity to convert their titles onto DVDs, so that's why our library has so many um, audio-described titles. And so we're, we're pretty proud of that, and we market it quite a bit. I've got about 12 or 1,300 people are, who are fairly active subscribers and borrowers of audio-described DVDs. I also have um, a newsletter that I do two times a year that tells my adult community um, and anybody else who I can send it to um, through email, large print, and braille uh, about the live theater performances that are taking place in the Boston area. And we have the luxury of having multiple theaters that do live audio description. Uh, and so I do a, a basically a September through March and a March through August um, kind of schedule to let them know when and where and what um, theaters will have performances on what dates. So ours, our description is scripted and 
a, d a specific date is set for the audio described performance. So just as a sidebar, I never had this happen to me before, but I guess it happens eventually with live people, um, <laughs> is that I went to an audio described performance on June 19th of Matilda, which is a, an odd little children's story written by Roald Dahl and um, about a little girl. And I'm sitting there in the theater waiting and waiting and waiting, wondering why the you know, why don't we have any pre-show? It's five minutes till showtime. What's going on? What's going on? Then this voice comes on and says, you know, unfortunately, we will have no audio description for today's performance. Never happened to me before. I was like, oh my gosh, I hope she wasn't you know, hurt or something because it's just, it's so un-audio describer-like. You guys don't miss gigs, you know? You don't miss the dates. Well, come to find out, she literally had put the, the, the performance on the wrong day in her calendar. So the, so the, theater, the theater was great, and they, they fully refunded tickets. They said, can you come back next Sunday? We'll get her back in that day, and you can come for free. And I said, we'll come back. So, but I, before I made those decisions, I said, well, I think I'm going to just give it a couple, a few minutes to see if I can follow this. Oh, it took me about 60 seconds to <laughs> know that I was lost completely. Um, the, the show starts with a, a bunch of screaming kids um, ver being very obnoxious at a birthday party. And so I'm like, what? is wrong with those kids. I mean, I had no clue. And I said to my husband, I think it's time to leave now because I don't know what's going on. So it didn't take very long to realize that without audio description, the show was just going to be a complete waste of time. So, um, so I did get to see it on the 26th of June with description, and that was, that was good. But this is an interesting thing, an observation that I've made, and then, uh, and then I'll turn it over to to Carla, um, is I really have noticed that um, adults in particular, people who are newly blind, are gravitating more to audio description than people who have been blind for a long time. And I find that very interesting. And I would love to talk more with Mark after the convention because He's obviously an enthusiast and has not been blind particularly long. And I'm finding a lot of people um, who are newly blind are really gravitating to audio description because it's giving them back that visual element of their life that they lost so recently. And they're embracing it fully, totally, Netflix, Apple TV. They're using it as ways to bring other technologies into their lives to access the information. And I have a lot harder time convincing um, people who have been blind longer to try an audio-described DVD or to come to an audio-described play um, just to experience it. And those of us who do that know that, you know, you go to the plays all the time. It's like you don't go to the play once and then you say, I went to an audio-described play once. Well. There's bazillion plays. There's always going to be something. There's movies. There's all kinds of opportunities. So I just continue 
to um, have my crusade <laughs> to educate and inform people who are blind and visually impaired. And, you know, I will probably have a lot of opportunities and the ADP steering committee talks about a lot of this as well. Um, some, of, some of the hesitation about embracing audio description, particularly for movies, is the experience that the blind person has at the theater. And that has such a dramatic impact on whether they're gonna continue to be an enthusiast or they're gonna just throw up their hands and say, I give up. You know, they gave me the, the enhanced listening system for the fourth time and I'm tired of arguing with them that I need the one that's for blind people, not deaf people. And so a lot of people give up. Um, my colleagues in California are frustrated enough with um, certain theater chains that they have engaged attorneys to work with them to try to get that specific movie theater chain to be more cognizant of what they're doing, train their staff, prepare the equipment better, make it work, make sure that it works, and that we can have a reliable experience. You know, if we go to the show, the movies, and one or two times out of four times, they tell us sorry and give us free tickets for the next time, I mean, how valuable are those free tickets? If that's all that we get are free tickets to go to an experience and be frustrated. So there's a lot going on with audio description, a lot of advocacy, and I'm excited about a lot of training and education that I think is starting to happen and needs to continue to happen in all the different populations that we work with. So thank you. If I could just say one, one thing before Carla begins, Kim, I was so impressed when you were talking about how the children at Perkins are learning advocacy skills because there they are saying, I want a Netflix movie and I want this on campus and I want to go to the movie in town and another kind of literacy is advocacy. So it fits very well with your final comment there as well. <laughs> it's great. Um, now we're going to hear from Carla Hayes and she's going to tell us how she works with audio description to teach um, world languages. So Carla, welcome and take it away. Good afternoon, everybody. I don't feel like I have much to say after hearing what all you said, the experts. But I feel privileged to be here and that, that you've asked me to be part of this panel. I also want to express my gratitude to each and every one of you in this room for your dedication to the cause of audio description. I have been blind since birth. Consequently, I have often had very wrong impressions of what the visual world is really like and what's really going on. Not only do films and movies with audio description entertain me, but they also educate me about aspects of everyday life which I have never been able to see and fully experience for myself. For this, I thank all of you. As a teacher, there are a lot of things I want to say, but I'm going to depart from what I was going to say just for a moment to tell you 
Personally, I probably don't have quite as much experience with watching the described films, only because um, I've been having problems accessing described TV with Verizon Fios. There aren't a lot of described performances in the great metropolis of McMurray, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and um, sometimes I do borrow films and I do enjoy them. And I will say this much, they do make a difference. One of my favorite movies is The Wizard of Oz. It's always been one of my favorite stories. And when I've been watching, I probably can watch that thing seven times, eight times, nine times, get something new out of it each time. And until it was described, I didn't make the connection that the Tin Man and the, the Lion, that, that they were the farmhands. I mean, there were just so many connections I didn't make. Mr. Holland's opus has a lot of dialogue, but there are these long periods where there isn't any dialogue. So when I watched it described, I was amazed at how much I missed. Now, as a totally blind person, one thing I will say, I can find it overwhelming because um, whenever there's a lot of description, it's, it's a lot of information, and I've never seen a color in my life, and sometimes I get lost in these long descriptions of colors. On the other hand, I'm grateful that people who have been sighted have that gift of getting that part of their lives back at least uh, vicariously. So I just wanted to say that, and I, again, I do want to thank you for, for, what, for what you're doing. Now, as a teacher, I teach Spanish, French, and German, and Latin sometimes, and English as a second language in a private Christian school, and also through my own school, Lingua Learn Communications, where I teach students from anywhere from two to 102 years old in addition to those languages, I teach ESL, English as a Second Language. So as you're listening to my remarks, just know that that's where it's coming from. That's where everything is coming from. So I'm just going to share with you a few things that description has done for me professionally. As a teacher of English as a Second Language and foreign languages with students of all ages in a variety of settings, I use description and described films in several different ways. First, I often show described videos to sighted students of English as a Second Language, ESL. These can be children or adults. This, I realize, is an unorthodox way to use <laughs> described videos, but I am in the habit as a teacher of using things for which they weren't intended sometimes. I won't get into that, that's another discussion, but I have a lot of imagination, maybe too much, but that's what I do. But it, this is an unorthodox way to use described videos, but I have found that when students are viewing actions and images on the screen while simultaneously hearing the description, basic English vocabulary is reinforced in a way that because they're pairing the action with the description of that action. And this is something a textbook can't give you. Even travel really can't give you because there's a lot else going on because you're concentrating on, oh, um, what does that sign mean? Or I have to get on this bus or <laughs> all of the different intricacies of travel. But using described films with ESL students is, is, is just a, a wonderful method that I've discovered really works. 
Secondly, when I'm selecting videos to show in my foreign language classroom, it's not always easy as a totally blind teacher for me to tell whether a particular film will be appropriate for my young students you know, to view. And, and I've had some experiences where I've had some non-described films that I've listened to and totally missed that there's some rather risque uh, scenes that are not appropriate for young eyes. So <laughs> it's a risk if you don't have the full picture. Some scenes and images may be too graphic, graphic or suggestive. And since I teach in a Christian school, we have strict standards for the educational materials that we are allowed to use. I preview every film that I show. If a video has description, it makes it so much easier for me to preview the film and to develop a listening guide or a study guide for it. This helps students to listen more actively and learn more from the film. Jason spoke to us about how listening paired with description does enhance the content that one learns. And this makes it also easier for me to hold students accountable for the content of the film because I got it, they got it, and I know the, cor the correct questions to ask and that I can hold them accountable for. Third, I find that described videos enhance <coughs> the learning experience of many of my sighted students who view them. The description fills in the gap of details that the students may have missed, maybe when their attention wanders, or if there's just a detail that they are fixating on to the expense of another detail. A description is also very helpful for students with various learning disabilities, which involve reading and processing information. The description reinforces the visual content presented on the screen, enhances students' understanding of the content of the film, and helps to build vocabulary and literacy. And I have seen this over and over again when I have used described videos with learning disabled students. Fourth, and this is interesting, this is a wish list. This is something you've all asked, what would you like for teachers? Here's what I would like. If, a, if described videos were available with description tracks in the foreign languages that I teach, I could use them much in the same way that I use English language described videos with ESL students to build vocabulary in the target language. So if anybody here knows of any sources of described videos with tracks in other languages, I'd be very much interested. Great, great, I can't wait. I can hook you up with another Spanish one. Oh, wow. Now I know why <laughs> I came. Yes, I <laughs> Finally, I just want to say that teachers use and can use and would use if they thought through it and had the access to them described videos 
in very diverse ways to teach almost any subject. And I would like to share with you as an example how my friend and colleague and fellow panelist, Susan Glass, used to describe videos in her classroom as an English professor. Susan Glass had her sighted students watch some ex excerpts of an audio described film with hardly any dialogue, and then gave them a handout with an excerpt from Joel Snyder's book, The Visual Made Verbal. After discussing the film, the students were assigned the task of choosing a few minutes from the film and describing that segment <coughs> in an essay of about 150 words. As part of this essay, they told how uh, they told why they included some details and left out others. And this is only one example of the many ways that teachers of almost any subject on almost any level can devise creative ways to use described videos in the classroom. <coughs> Obviously, the more described videos and films that are available, the more they can be used to enhance the educational process for blind and sighted students alike. How they can be used is limited only by a teacher's ingenuity and imagination. I'm gonna conclude with a quirky little story. I always like to tell jokes and stories. Maybe it's one of my faults. But it illustrates what we're talking about today. There was a very lazy student in a college that was given the assignment to write a paper about meteorology and weather conditions. It was supposed to be a very detailed research paper of at least 1,000 words in length. This student was very lazy, as I said before, and he hated to write papers. But he did want to earn extra credit in the worst way because his grade was horrible in this class. So. He took a picture of a sunset, and then he took another picture of a rainstorm. He turned in these two pictures to his professor with the following note attached. If a picture is worth a thousand words, here's two. And see, he even used wrong grammar. He said, here's two instead of here are two. So, so, so he got marked down for grammar, too. But I just want you to know that a picture may indeed be worth a thousand words. But when you are totally blind, a few carefully chosen words can paint a thousand pictures. This is why audio description is important. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carla. Wonderful. Now I would like to introduce Dr. Judith Dixon. Well, she's not here right oh, just yet. Well, can I can I recommend Susan that yes. uh, we pause for just a second while I try to get Hillary Kleck on the phone? All right. Because uh, right. she didn't answer, but we've been emailing, and I think she's ready to go. Oh, that would us. be wonderful. Uh, surely. Okay, and then uh, Judy Dixon, I think, wanted to go last. Uh, okay. The then we're fine. So let's and see let's if see I can, can make do. this sure. work. Sure. 
Yeah. Ain't. Right. Fingers tap keys quietly. <laughs> Pens squiggle quietly. All right. I don't think her Skype is where I'm going to call her phone number because that's that's the. Uh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Hi, Hillary. There you go. Good. We're all we're getting applause here. Uh, we finally got through to you. Uh, this is great. Um, we're ready to to hear from you. Susan Glass is the chair of our panel, and she will introduce you. How's that? Okay, great. Hello, Hillary. <laughs> I've been I've been looking forward to meeting you, even in this context. We want to hear all about how audio description has enhanced literacy for your wonderful daughter and how it's been a part of your lives together and any other information you'd like to share with us, so take it away. Okay, great. Yeah, Madeline's sitting here beside me. She is 11 years old now and was born um, in 2005 with bilateral anophthalmia. And she now goes to school at Perkins, but I homeschooled her for two to three years when we still lived in Arkansas. That's when we, she was, you know, kindergarten age and up from then, and that's when we got really involved with audio description, and uh, um, she's just, now she expects it everywhere, and so I just, that's the one thing, if, if no one takes anything else from our discussion, I guess, is that I know that looking back, you know, starting then and just talking about it and getting it when we could, which has advanced so much in the last few years and so much more, um, opportunities available for it um, that now she's really her own advocate at 11 years old um, at the theater and at school um, even accessibility with Netflix and uh, she uses Apple to voiceover um, so yeah we're we're big proponents and we share it with everyone we know <laughs> um, but so yeah I had kind of thought back and we still use so much audio description uh, stuff with her school work at home um, or her ho homework from school and we do of course lots of other uh, educational and fun things especially now that we live in Boston that there's so much more here as well um, but yeah so we of course used uh, DCMP and we're so excited she was very excited to now that um, she has the Magic School Bus series with audio description. And so those were great to incorporate into our homeschool lesson plans. And now she just still likes to watch them anytime and still very educational. Um, but yeah, is that what would you say your favorite show is on that you watch with audio description on PBS or on Netflix? Or what do you think, Madeline? Sesame Street. Oh. Sorry. oh. Sesame Street is big in our house. Lots of PBS shows as well. Um, Curious George, you like, don't you? And Daniel Tiger, you used to like a lot. And so now, uh, Madeline also has a little brother who's just now about six months old. And we just had Madeline for the longest time. And now I see now that he's even getting, even at six months old, and. We have, of course, a lot of Braille books from when Madeline was younger that are both Braille and print. And, um, and so I'm seeing already the need uh, 
for it to be everywhere, which of course we wanted it everywhere anyway, but with audio description and other accessibility options, uh, for them to share in playing and learning and growing up together. You know, we don't want Madeline or to be left out of anything, do we? No. No. We want all of them. Yes. Yes. So, um, so that's the big thing. We, we really work, uh, like I said, in, in using the audio description at home with the shows, uh, mostly, I guess, on PBS. That's her favorite station. And, um, and Netflix. She is a whiz at using Netflix all by herself on the iPad on, on Apple TV, as well as uh, iTunes, of course, music and everything, but audio description, finding movies herself and shows that we can all watch together on Apple movies on that, right? Right. Yeah. What has been your favorite movie we've watched on Apple TV with audio description? Um... I think my favorite movie was um, Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo, yes. Though we haven't been to see Finding Dory yet, but that's on our list, isn't it? Yes. And we'll make sure it has audio description. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that. I think, start, I, I just want to reiterate, I guess, starting at such an early age now any like even with finding dory or movies she hears about on tv um she immediately like that's her first question can we go see it and does it have audio description <laughs> um so and if and i mean just for an accessibility uh, in itself if there's an app um that she can't use and she can hear me say oh i don't know if that one's accessible and what do you say when we do that? You always ask if we can write them and ask them to make it accessible, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've definitely sent some emails saying, hey, this isn't accessible, but we need it to be. Um, and uh, we've also used a lot of just description of pictures and books as well, and um, we found some Bookshare books with image descriptions, and then the uh, Great Expectations uh, program from, with National Braille Press. They've, we've done a lot of those, and Madeline really enjoys getting the pictures described, and I've seen it now that she's getting older, and she likes, she has such an imagination, and comes up with so many of her own stories that I that it's more from, um, I remember when she was younger, just like she loved doing the different voices of characters and she can mimic about any voice that she can, you know, that you could hear. And, but now it's more from, from that um, as she's progressed and learned. And I owe, I contribute a lot of it to audio description in the, in the um, TV and uh, other videos and, educational materials that we've used um, that now she's writing her own stories and also including the image descriptions for what she imagines in her stories being. And for, for me, I mean, I know there are a lot of kids out there with different visual impairments or sighted, whatever, but for me to see Madeline do that is just one of the best things ever because there was a time when it was just like, it was really hard 
to think that that we were going to get this far, and we're just sailed past it, and she's doing wonderful. And like I said, such an imagination that who knows who knows what she'll do in the future. What she, she might be an author. She loves music. What else? What do you think you might be when you grow up? Um, a doctor. Or a doctor. Ah. Yeah. We love those doctors, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Susan, if I can jump in for a second. Yes, of course. Hi, Hillary. Hi, Madeline. This is Joel Snyder. Hi. Hi. I, I've known uh, Hillary and Madeline since when you, um, well, uh, Madeline, uh, since uh, when you all lived in Arkansas. Yes. And Yeah, and I think when you were in Arkansas, too, that may have been long enough ago, uh, I was very honored to uh, be the producer of the description for Sesame Street for six years, so uh, uh, Madeline may have heard my voice and, and our writing of description. Uh, yes, Joyce Adams is here who wrote many of those program descriptions. Um, so I wanted to, to mention that. Um, it, Susan, I wonder if you, while, while I have um, Hillary and Madeline on the line, I'm gonna try and get Jason back, because sure. uh, he, he dropped off here, so I'm gonna sure. uh, just call that number again and get him on the line. But I um, wonder if you could also speak to the Batty program. I want Madeline to know about that because she'd be, she'd be a great entrant, I think. That's yeah. our old Young Described Film Critic con Contest. That's, that's right, our old Young Describer Film Contest, which I think we started back in 2009, uh, thereabouts, um, is now revitalized uh, and it's called The Benefits of Audio Description in education or the baddie award because we think kids like to be baddies so we'll ask them but i think so um we are going to be the audio description project and dcmp um description caption media program are partnering on a special contest for young people whereby students who are blind and visually impaired will watch films taken from the DCMB library, and they, the, what film they watch will be de determined by their classroom teacher or their teacher with the visually impaired. Um, so it could be one from the Magic School Bus series, it could be another one, but um, the idea would be that a, a student would watch a film and write a brief essay in which she or he talks about how the described version of, how hearing the description helped make the film more interesting and what words in the description they really liked and how it, how it enabled them to see something and what part of the film they really liked. Um, the contest is going to be launched this fall. We are hard at work right now getting our publicity materials in place so that um, Jason can help us publicize them on the DCMP website and also on the ADP website, we'll have them there. But the idea is that this fall, We'd like to hit the ground running and um, reach out to ACB affiliates all over the country and ask them to get in touch with their teachers of the visually impaired. Let them know that we have this contest. We're going to have roughly four age categories of entrance. There'll be um, children maybe ages um, 5 to 11, 11 to 15, and then 15 to 22, so three categories, sorry. Um, maybe uh, keeping the categories similar to those in the Braille Challenge where we have a 
freshman, junior varsity, and varsity level. Students will be encouraged to choose a film, um, write an essay describing the film. The essays will be um, turned in to the, the Batty contest judges around the end of October, around October 31st, and we will try to announce our winners by December 31st. And if the world works really the way we want it to, we'd love to bring our 12 winners to the mid-year proceedings for ACB um, in Washington, D.C. Um, if you come to Washington, D.C. and you are a young person, you will discover that there are audio-described experiences all around you. Um, and they can be things like a described White House tour or a described tour of the, Smu the Smithsonian's History of uh, Transportation exhibit. Um, but we would like to um, uh, award the winners of the Batty Contest, the audio describer film critics, and um, also their teachers. We would like to um, come up with prizes for teachers. So as you can see, we are in the planning stages, but we very much want to get our contest off the ground again uh, this year. And um, Jason's been so wonderful and generous in, in agreeing to, um, to help us work with the uh, described films that are already available. Those yeah, they're, th they're our partners. DCMP is our partner. They are. Our, I, I hope context. I said that that we oh are yeah. full partnered. Oh I, yeah. I said um, partnering with, and, and I meant full partner. And um, the the neat thing too is that if you were a classroom teacher and you had a visually impaired student in your class, everybody in the class could still watch that film and have the experience Jason described of. Um, having a sleep shade and watching it in that way and having that audio described experience. But uh, we are really looking forward to publicizing this and getting it out to as many, through as many teaching publications as we have and get a, a good uh, round of contestants this year. Susan Judy is now here and Excellent. she is to your, to your left. And I'm going to, Hillary, I'm going to try and get, uh, I'm still trying to get Jason Stark back on the line. Uh, if you get put on hold or uh, get knocked off, I'll try and get back to you, too. Okay. Judy is on. And I think we have uh, Jason Stark uh, via Skype as well. Yes, I'm back. Excellent. Good afternoon. I'm Judy Dixon. And uh, I usually like to be last on a panel because I hear all the other panel presentations and it gives me a lot of ideas of things to talk about. But today, unfortunately, I had another commitment, so I haven't heard a word that anybody has said prior to me. It's entirely possible I'm going to repeat things. It's entirely possible I'm going to talk about something completely different from what the other panel members have talked about. So um, if any of those things happen, I apologize in advance. However, I, I, am, I work for the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, which is part of the Library of Congress. And we do uh, audio books and braille books and a lot of other things. But being a library, of course, we're concerned about things like knowledge and information and literacy. And, and the, the notion of literacy um, is what I want to talk about today, not just for children, but all, all ages. Um, I don't think I, there's any age that any of us stops working on our literacy. And 
blind people are absolutely no exception, which I will get into in a second. If you look up literacy in a dictionary, the first definition is usually um, the ability to read and write. And that's really not the aspect of literacy that we're concerned with at the moment. I think that the second definition is somewhat more relevant to today's discussion. And that is being knowledgeable in a particular subject. Well, we're not going to just limit ourselves to, to a subject. When we talk about literacy and audio description, I think we're talking something more about what is often termed these days cultural literacy. But I think we probably need a new term that we don't even have yet. And blindness literacy doesn't quite cut it. Um, so we'll have to think of a more politically correct one. But there's, there's really a lot of stuff that blind people don't know that the average sighted person has just taken in in the course of living. I can remember as a teenager when I learned that Greyhound racing wasn't bus racing. <laughs> like, probably no sighted person thought that, but you know, they talked about Greyhound racing. I thought, I thought they were racing Greyhound buses. I guess, I guess they're not. <laughs> Well, yeah, right. <laughs> but there's a lot of other things. I, um, I, my husband and I, and this was only a few years ago, we were shopping with some friends, and we were in one of these crafty stores in a resort area, and we came across a ceramic thing, and my, our, my, our friend said, oh, that's a genie lamp. A genie lamp? You can't be serious. It looks like a teapot. Well, no, it's a genie lamp. I said, what is the genie doing there? Lay down? You know, yes, of course. And I, I mean, Doug and I both, but both of us have been blind all our lives, we thought a genie lamp was a vertical thing. And genies stood up and down in there. And I, I, people have told me since that apparently the I dream of genie genie was in that kind of lamp. Because some, see now, if you guys had been describing I dream of genie, you'd probably want to tell us that that genie lamp was different from what one normally thinks of as a genie lamp. But in fact, I would never have thought of whatever a normal genie lamp looked like. So I know that it's not easy to know what people know, because how could you? But I, I think one of the things is, you know, could, could a person have ever been able to touch this thing? Could a person, I remember when, when I was a, you know, blind people get audio description all the time. I mean, every, you know, as a three-year-old, when I'm asking my father, you know, what something looks like, and he's describing it to me, you know, he, he didn't get any training in audio description. He just wung it, you know, as best he could. And it, so I remember I would, m my father would, t you know, say that he, he couldn't see something, something I might ask him to describe. And it, it puzzled me. And even to this day, it puzzles me still a little there's the things that blind, that sighted people can't see, because I think they should be able to see everything. And, <laughs> and apparently there's stuff that you just can't see. And I remember one time I was about, I, it's a, one of the great family stories, is I was about three, and I was in frustration asking him, you know, about this and that and the other, and, and finally he says, well, I just can't see it. I said, but you can see the moon. The fact that he could see the moon and he couldn't see what was going on, you know, in a, in a car next to us in, at night, 
I don't, I don't get this, you know. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> there's, there's the, you know, kind of obvious things that, that people don't know. I, my husband and I were watching um, Aaron Rockovich, a movie on an airplane one time, a Julia Roberts movie, and apparently at the, at the end of this movie, somebody gives her a check. Well, nobody ever says out loud how much this check is for, <laughs> but, but it sho they show it. But this movie wasn't described. And uh, so, like, what do we do? Do we, you know, wake up the guy next to us and ask him, <laughs> you know, how much was that check for? So, fortunately, I watched this movie in the era of the internet. So, as soon as I get to the plane lands, I go to my hotel, get to my hotel room, and I Google Aaron Brockovich and found a summary of the plot and found out how much the check was for. <laughs> so at least we have recourse nowadays to find out things we don't know. But it's, it's an interesting thing to feel. I, I read one time that an educator of blind children said that blind children have brains like Swiss cheese. And I found that kind of offensive. <laughs> I mean, I, I get the point. Yes, there are holes. <laughs> but, you know, my, my brain is more like you know, goat cheese or something. You know, I just, I, I don't think Swiss cheese really is terribly something I want to have my brain be like, but there's just a lot of stuff we don't know and a lot of stuff that, that we don't even know we don't know, which is the worst part of all. There's, audio description is actually becoming a bigger part of our culture um, as mobile phones become more prevalent among blind people because there are now a number of apps where a blind person can just run the app and a human being comes on and we can ask them things or show them things and have them describe them to us. They're not trained either. Well, some of them actually are trained. Uh, you guys, you could moonlight. You know, when, when, you're, when, when there's no theater around, you can, there, there's, a, there's a new service called Ira, A-I-R-A, and they, they have a deal where, um, the blind person wears some kind of, like Google glasses, but they're, they're glasses for iOS, and wears these glasses and has an app on, in, on an iPhone and walks around and there's a describer somewhere, um, anywhere I suppose, and describing in your ear, you know, whatever you want him to describe. I, I've heard a guy describe, he got off an airplane and somebody remotely gave him directions all the way to the baggage claim and, and, and he was able to claim his own suitcase because this person could see remotely through the glasses that this guy was wearing that was connected to his iPhone. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, audio description going on. I, there's also a lot of interest in, you know, like I could wear these glasses and then I can have a conversation with a sighted person and that person in my ear can tell me if the person is frowning or smiling or, you know, or how they're reacting to the things I'm saying. Like this audience, I, I always should get one of you guys to come up and, you know, keep telling me, oh, you know, well, half of them are asleep. And, oh. uh, <laughs> you know, I don't see, one's looking bored, looking through, looking through a book. And, you know, I, I could use some description while I'm doing this. But be careful about those facial expressions because, you know, I've never seen facial expressions, so I, I intellectually know that a smile means that you're happy, 
and I have a rough idea what facial muscles actually have to action to make a smile because I've I've seen smiley face uh, logo things, and I know what a, that a frown means you're not happy and and I but like a grimace I have no idea what a grimace looks like not a not a clue I I don't know what facial muscles one might use to make and I'm sure there's other um, other uh, facial expressions that have to happen. So it, whenever I <laughs> whenever I watch something that's audio described, I'm like, what on earth does that mean? <laughs> but anyway, thank you guys. Um, I'm sure all of you, you're, you're all audio describers in training, right? Some, some. Some. And some of, and some of you. Ah, good, good. Okay. Well, um, keep up the good work because it's loads of fun to have things described. And whatever you say, it's better than nothing. <laughs> Thank you. Susan, I think we have uh, Hillary and, and Jason, I hope, I think, uh, both back online. So if we can open up to questions. Let's do that. Thank you. Yes, okay, good. I will play Phil Donahue again. Uh, Fred Brack. Well, since you just uh, spoke to us, I have a, I have a question um, for you, Judy, on uh, you, what you didn't understand about the, the facial expressions. If I hear them say a furrowed brow one more time when I'm listening to the description, I wonder, do you know what a furrowed brow is? She's saying, is that a frown? Furrowed brow. She's no. asking if that means is that a, a I'm translating so it goes to the recording. No, uh, but, I, but it seems to be an expression that I hear all the time on audio description. And okay. There thank we go. <laughs> uh, thank you. I mean, that's interesting. That comes up uh, fairly frequently, Judy. And I, you know, I think it's a matter of, of knowing that a grimace is something of a synonym for a frown, a furrowed brow perhaps, uh, more of a, a gesture of, of concern or something, but um, you know, it's just being aware of that. I, I'm going to. Well, I'll take some other questions from the floor, but I wanted to uh, mention to Judy if you didn't know, is she her bio is in the forms that you have in your folders, but uh, she's from the National Library Service in Washington D.C., a longtime employee there and much valued and respected. Uh, I want to ask Judy about, and sh I think she knows what I'm going to say because I've. I've pigeonholed her and her boss, Karen Kenninger, about this. What about, um, I don't know if you can require, uh, but what about brailled books, uh, brailing descriptions of images, especially for children's books, which are loaded with pictures? Why aren't, in most braille books for kids, the pictures are not described and the descriptions are not in braille? Hey, well, Judy. <laughs> there's, there, there's a, there is a one-word answer. Copyright. Oh, why? Sorry. No, seriously. Um, we can't change the books. Um, the reality is when that narrator is in the recording booth and they're recording a book and they see a picture and they think it needs a description and they throw a few extra words, you know, who's going to tell on them or who, you know, who's going to know? The Braille book is a lot more difficult hmm. because a Braille book is usually scanned and translated into Braille. And the proofreader might read it 
but the it would be a major process to describe books. Now, there are always exceptions to things like copyrights, and if we did do picture descriptions in children's books, it would need to be a special project and one that we organize specifically with permission of copyright. I owners. would love to have ACB well, and the audio description project work with you on that and make that happen. It's simply a translation of a picture to words. It's it's really is not shouldn't be in my mind a copyright issue. Karen's in, the, bu Karen's in the building somewhere. Yeah, that's right, Jolyn. Judy, you might be able to help me with this. Um, I think it was at the Louisville uh, Convention that I believe I visited National Braille Press and I was able to, Printing House, I'm sorry, uh, Printing House, and I did purchase a copy of that wonderful classic, Goodnight Moon, which was brailled and thermographed and described. That was actually done, though, by National Braille Press, which, okay. is, which yeah, is why correct, why, why you may think of National Braille Press in that regard. Right. Right. But that was a special project that they did not for NLS, but oh. as part of, of the special things that they do. Okay, I was so, I bought it and have it at oh. home. It is, and it is and very nice. Susan, you looked at it, and we read it together, and you were amazed at what a difference that description made in your understanding. Judy, you can expect the, uh, I'll be calling Karen and you both uh, about that. Let me go over here. Uh, to Kim, is that right? Did I get your name right? Susan, I'm sorry, excuse me. Go ahead, Susan. A couple comments. One, um, National Braille Press has done some of their print braille books with description. And um, my thought about description, I think it'd be nice, but if you have a little first grader who's just learning to read, they can't read it yet. It's gonna be beyond what they could possibly read. So, I mean, there's, right, right, but they would be learning Braille, but if you put the um, description in Braille, it's probably going to be a little beyond their reading level of reading, you know, your short vowel words. Can I, can I comment on that? Yes. I, I think, but I think, I, well, but, but the idea of children's Braille books, the question is, who's going to be reading this child's children's Braille book? Very often... And this is, this is true with our print Braille books, too. Very often, it's an adult Braille reader mm -hmm. that's going to read that book to a child. And, and it, would, it, would very, it would definitely be helpful at times for the adult Braille reader to have a description of the... I mean, I, can <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've said to a kid, you know, see the train? There, there's a train there on that page. No, there's not, you oh. know. <laughs> You know, because the train's really on the next page or the previous page or something. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that it would be useful for the adult Braille reader to have descriptions. But I think your point is well taken that if it's a description in Braille, unless the description is written at the same grade level as the content of the book, you know, the mm. child isn't going to read it and the teacher's not likely to have the text of that description, but it probably makes more sense to do this as part of NLS because our books aren't for educational purposes anyway. But I think, Joel, what we'd want to do is, is target a few books that were specific ones that, that adult Braille readers would be reading to kids. And I'm one of those who has been totally blind and I like description. <laughs> I'm not one of those who doesn't, I do. Matt Kaplowitz. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to add that uh, in this um, conversation about uh, the 
image descriptions for children's books. Um, about four years ago, Bridge Multimedia started um, working on this multi-sensory project that was funded in part by uh, Reader's Digest. And Reader's Digest brought us to National Braille Press. And um, the project that Bridge created um, was taken on by Na National Braille Press. And it's known as uh, Great Expectations, which Hillary was talking about. The thing I wanted to clarify is that you're right, Judy, there's impossible um, obstacles to adding description, even in an audio book, uh, because it's a modification of the audio book. So what we did instead was all of the books in this Great Expectation series have image description on the uh, National Braille Press website, and parents can download it. And since it's not part of the book, but it's a separate item, parents or teachers or teacher's aides can uh, uh, simply download the material and have full access to it. And it also is available, I believe, in Braille. Um, I wanted to jump over to one other thing while I have the mic, which was what um, uh, Kim was talking about uh, with description for theater and so on, um, to say <laughs> that something horrible happened in New York City where the preeminent organization called um, Healing Arts Initiative that was formerly hospital audiences, uh, a blind patron or a theater could contract, contact HAI and free of charge they would send a describer to the theater and most of the major Broadway shows were described and patrons could get the service free of charge. Uh, I got an email two or three weeks ago, they have filed for bankruptcy. And it's a horrible thing, and um, people are looking at ways to try to work around that, but um, this is yet again another area that we can't let our guard down. Interesting, too, the in, in New York City, Sound Associates does pre-recorded description for live uh, performance, which it might come up in the next session, too, a, a way, one way to make every performance of a play uh, accessible with description. Mark Urban. Okay, so I have a question. I don't know which panelist would be the best, but um, I try to th I'm trying to think of how, where education's going uh, beyond even where it is today. And one of the largest elements of education in a broad sense is the concept of microlearning the idea of short, often video or visual elements that are designed to provide a very targeted educational experience about a very specific topic or, or element. That micro-learning in terms of audio description, I think there's a lot of, uh, I guess I could, the, the broad question is how can we, as this new learning technology and this new frontier of opportunities, how do we leverage that opportunity to ensure that audio description becomes part of that wave instead of left behind by that wave as it moves forward? Who wants to speak to that? <laughs> Here's Carla. Okay, as I say, I'm not an expert with this, um, but I would think that 
it could work in a similar way that some of the DCMP films that I have seen work, um, where there, there's tracks that, that describe the, uh, the content that can be turned on and off, that could be paused, that we could just, we could adapt the descriptive technologies that we have and simply have them perform that particular task. The microlearning thing is a trend in, in, some, in some parts of education, and in some ways it catches on, and in some ways it doesn't. But things are getting more and more visual, and so I think we have to keep our eyes open for the ways that we can add description. Another possibility is to, sometimes I find, I've seen some of these micro lessons or whatever you want to call them, and there's not a lot of time to insert dialogue. So <laughs> another possibility may be to, provi to provide a study guide, a learning guide, a listening guide with the film that could be previewed before the, s the students would view it that will describe the the particular content that's going on, because quite honestly, in some of these, there isn't a lot of room to insert dialogue. So I think that might be a good way to do it as well. Could uh, Jason, do, do you have any ideas about that? Jason, are you there? Yeah, um, well, you know, one of the things that uh, DCP is exploring, um, the majority of content that we've added to our collection in the past um, has been longer length, you know, 20 minute to, you know, hour long productions. And obviously that's not the trend um, that the teachers are using in the classroom. And so we are exploring um, breaking those longer items into shorter clips. Um, in terms of description, we've done some, um, you know, pre-description describing the content um, prior to the clip being displayed. And so depending on the content, um, sometimes that works very effectively. Um, but as uh, the, the, the original uh, question asker uh, mentioned, we definitely need to um, ensure that, that description is um, a feature that, that is maintained as this type of learning environment uh, continues to grow. That's great. Uh, Valerie Hunter has a question, and then Jen Nigro, and we'll wrap this up. It's not a question I want to add. Hi, Jason. Hey, Valerie. He's my, he's my boss for some of this. When, when she brought this up, the first thing I thought of was the science video vocab things we've been working on. Absolutely. Um, the, just to use that, I'll just throw it out as an example. Um, while we have been doing uh, longer form things, we've also been doing, and the science video vocab thing a series is an example of like, what, two, three minute videos? Of Correct. one like very specific thing, whether it's, you know, an organism or uh, it could even be like some sort of a concept of science and super short, two and a half minutes. And so uh, I've, had to, I've had to write <laughs> the description for these. And so there are times when it's like, no, you've pretty much taken care of all of it. And um, I, I don't have anything except just the beginning and the end, the credits, the beginning and the end. Um, but there are, there, there are chances in there sometimes. It's, it's, it, it's uh, more than not, almost all of them, if I remember correctly, there's some description that I, I get to get in there in the middle of the body of the piece 
So to use that as an example, it doesn't seem like there's, <laughs> there's room, but um, at least 90% of the time there is some, un unless, unless those scripts uh, got to... Uh, Got to your editors, Jason, and they got, got rid of everything because it <laughs> turns out there was a room. But, but they're, they're in there. That's great. Jen Nigra. All right, so we uh, at Audio Reader in Kansas just got our request, our first request from the local school district uh, for physics videos, description for physics videos for a, a student who is blind. And we're in a state where education funding is constantly being cut. Um, if you know anything about Kansas politics, um, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so they called and we played phone tag back and forth and, and I finally left a message saying, well, you know, let me know what you, know, what you need and, and let's take a look at this project and I can work up a quote. Crickets, I have heard nothing back. And I know from dealing with our school district through um, my own child's needs um, on the autism spectrum that they look for ways around providing accommodations wherever they can. And so my concern in all of this is obviously blended learning, micro learning, whatever trendy name they wanna call it, it comes with a cost and I don't think those costs have been fully anticipated by the schools that are implementing these methods. And so how do we as an industry overcome that? Susan, can you speak to that? No, she's, she's shaking her head. That's, that's the, oh, she described herself. How about that? Judy or, or Jason or uh, Hillary? Any thoughts? You've stumped the panel. As a Go ahead. As uh, a parent um, and slash homeschool teacher, and I'm very involved in Madeline's um, education at school and on a daily basis, really. Um, I mean, I think one part um, is get if there's a way. I mean, if there's one student, I understand it's a little bit tougher, um, but. But at Perkins, at least, I mean, the parents, a lot of the parents are very involved and the, the school really listens to what the parents have to say. Um, and I know it will probably take some time just for everyone as everything does, but, um, but I think if you can get your foot in the door, kind of, and that may be more of your question is getting the foot in the door of getting started, but um, I think if these, who you know the schools and the teachers and everyone else involved can see progress of parents and and students making this progress um, because of these features and audio description and everything else involved um, and are shown that it's a necessity, not a privilege or an extra you know feature. I guess you could say that um, that I think people are hopefully be more willing to listen to us. Um, but and like I said with Madeline, as much as we've seen her progress over the years of having all of this access that we've strived so hard to achieve, um, that, I mean, I think just hopefully the statistics, I guess, if, if nothing else, um, 
can outweigh the cost. Um, I always, lately I keep coming back to the whole thing of it's not personal, it's business. Well, it's business for some, but it's, hmm. <laughs> it's really personal for yeah. the parents. And yeah. those are the people that um, I think could really weigh in and, and get things kick-started in some communities. Sure. Kathy, you have a quick comment? Oh. Or? Uh, the, it, this sort of ties in with description, but um, how do you teach students, um, preferably in the elementary school, to write their signature, write their name, to de describe letters and the shapes of letters and that type of thing? Someone want to, Susan? I can, I can speak to that, sure. actually, um, because we did learn, we had a signature handwriting class when I was 10 and 11, and it was actually less described than um, the person holding my hand and us tracing the letters together, so it was a kinesthetic motion. Now, I do not have a legible signature. That is not <laughs> the fault of the person who taught me. It's the fault of too many years of negligence and not not, you know, being like everyone else where you go squiggle. But um, I, I do, actually, now that you're asking the question, I do remember um, that we um, cut out shapes of the letters. We traced them with marking wheels. Um, we talked about um, the curve of an S, and we talked about um, uh, M's, you know, with hills in them and N's. You know, an M had two humps or hills, and an N's had one, and thinking of the up and down motion. And I do remember some imagery coming into that, and it was a combination in terms of signature writing of imagery and talking through the process and discovering together what images helped me remember the squiggle of the Z and the, and the more you know, graceful, longer curve of the S, for instance. But it was also the kinesthetic motion of our hands working together, the handwriting teacher and my hand. Um, while I have the mic, I just wanted to um, jump on a little bit of what, what um, Hillary was just saying and say that, you know, um, if we think about universal design and we, we accept the premise that audio description is not a luxury but a necessity for all learners, then every bit of curriculum has it. And pretty soon all the films have it and the yep. idea is that it gets, there's, there's, there will cease to be a copyright issue because it's going to be a part of textbook mandate just as graphics are part of textbook mandate. And I think that's the approach that we need to come back to is universal design, yep. build it from the ground up. Here, insist, here. insist, insist. Yes, indeed. What a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Susan and JoLynn, for this great panel. Thank you, Carla and Judy. And Kim had to leave us. And thank you, Hillary and Jason. Thank you. You, you bet, you bet. Let's take our 15-minute uh, break. We'll come back at, say, 3.20 and hear all about Minneapolis audio description heaven. And, but first, I want to, uh, I've been negligent. I haven't said happy 4th of July to everybody. Uh, you know, we, yeah, we should have, that's right. Debbie, we, 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 we should have arranged for fireworks description. Uh, for tonight or something, I don't know. It's like, okay. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Right, right. Anyway, but happy 4th of July. I wanted to mention quickly, um, it's come up uh, once or twice, and uh, 
hey, I, I'm not shy, especially since we have a great panel of, of, of several audio describers and an audio description consumer. They're all, they're all trained describers. I did want to mention the book I'm holding in my left hand, Aha, uh -huh, uh, written by yours truly. Um, it is an ACB publication um, my, uh, in 2014, the Visual Made Verbal Comprehensive Training Manual and Guide to the History and Applications of Audio Description. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's right. It is available in print at um, the ACB Mini Mall in the Exhibitors Hall. It's also online at the ACB Mini Mall. Um, is available via download as a, a PDF or text file. But I also wanted to mention, because I'm kind of jazzed about the fact that, and, and actually Carla Hayes made me uh, remember this, um, by the end of this year, the book will be published in Polish, Portuguese, and Russian. So, and, and actually, I'm, I'm going to be talking to Carla. I'm, I'm actively trying to uh, figure out how to get it published in Spanish. Um, I'll be doing a workshop on description in December at the Havana International Film Festival in Cuba. So if, well, I don't know if we'll have something together by then, but um, maybe we can get them to sponsor something. But in any event, it is great to have some trained audio describers and uh, folks. You know, Minneapolis has, is audio description heaven, right? It, it has always impressed me for so many years as such a a hotbed of great description uh, here. I've, I've known uh, Rick Jacobson for a long time. I've known Ken Rogers, uh, audio description consumer, and John Scallon, too, who runs VSA uh, Arts of Minnesota and has really taken the, the description thing so seriously and supported it so well. I'm thrilled to uh, introduce John, who will uh, moderate the panel. John Scallon. Good afternoon. And I want to uh, uh, add to Joel's comment that it is audio description in Minneapolis and St. Paul. We can't oh. leave out our uh, we can't leave out our state capital because we have a number of audio description hotbeds in St. Paul, including the Ordway Center, the History Theater, Park Square Theater, and a number of others that you won't be able to see this week. Uh, I'd like to briefly introduce or let our panel members introduce themselves. Uh, my name is John Scollin. I live in a, a little town near Minneapolis-St. Paul. I uh, first got introduced to audio description a long time ago when I had a friend who was blind and we went to theater festivals around the country. Not one of those festivals was ever described for him, so we sat next to him whispering all the description. But as a result of his advocacy, that organization now has a policy, at least, to provide audio description if there's a request. Of course, they bury that request language as far down in the conference uh, <laughs> materials as you can imagine. Anyway, that was a long time ago. To my left, to your right, is Ken Rogers. To his left is Laura Weber's, a local audio describer who I believe described South Pacific for a number of you the other day, the other night, and and. Uh, Rick Jacobson is on the wall to her left. We have another. <laughs> He's not climbing up it quite yet. And we have another audio describer in the audience, Laura, Laurie Pape Hadley. So I'll let uh, Ken introduce himself. 
Hi again, my name is Ken. Um, welcome to you all. I very much appreciate that you're here and you're uh, learning the craft because um, there can never be too many audio describers. Um, I have lived in the Twin Cities uh, 35 years maybe. Um, I have not been blind from birth. I lost my sight as an adult um, and um, am an avid theater goer. Um, it would not be possible to experience theater as richly as it's provided in the Twin Cities had we not had very um, competent and well-trained audio describers. So we haven't, um, it's, it, like anything, it's a process. And um, I'm just grateful to be in this great city with as much arts um, that's accessible to me and people like me. I'm Laura, and I am an audio describer here in the Twin Cities. I've been describing shows for about 10 years now, and that, that was indeed me you heard at South Pacific, if you were uh, able to join us. And um, I'm sure I'll get a little bit of time here to talk about how I got into it, why I stay into it, what I like about it, and, you know, except for Ken, not so much Ken. Uh, and uh, so let me turn this over to Rick. And I'm Rick Jacobson. I've been describing for 22 years now. Lori and I have been, we're part of the second class of describers uh, in Minneapolis. Our first, our teachers learned directly from the fan steals. So there's a little lineage there. And then we brought Laura in under our wing. Um, and we just trained another class two years ago, six more describers. No, five more, three more, huh? Oh, we had some dropouts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've been doing theater for about 22 years. I don't know how many shows a month we do. Probably 30 in this town. I, I do about 95 shows a year. So uh, we keep busy. Yeah, we have a good, a good number of theaters. Most of it's due to uh, legacy funds, which I'm sure John will talk about. Um, it's a, a lot of money from the state to support the arts. Um, I think that's all. More will come up later. Well, just to give you a few numbers, and then we'll get into real talk, but the numbers of audio-described shows in Minnesota over the last... 15 years have grown as ASL interpreted shows have grown, as captioned shows have grown. This year through July, we've had 115 performances by of audio described shows. Last year, we had 201. In 2014, we had 218. In 2013, we had 237. That's shows. Uh, sometimes it doesn't include all the shows, like the Guthrie Theater and some of the others audio described more than one. So it's, if it was a Guthrie, it counts as one, and they might have done three. So we have more audio described shows in Minneapolis-St. Paul than anywhere in the world. And I think that's because uh, we had that initial core of audio describers who had the wonderful training at the Guthrie. We had an initial group of audio description patrons, and uh, maybe Rick and Ken perhaps can mention some of those people who were the real strengths. Uh, they wanted to, as I recall, a few people, 
wanted to experience the arts just like everybody else. They wanted to know why people were laughing, why they were crying, <laughs> if that was the case. <laughs> uh, not necessarily because of the quality of the performance, but for <laughs> other reasons. Uh, so, um, yeah, let me ask Ken and, uh, what's his face down there? Rick. <laughs> Who some of the key folks were and what you recall about their advocacy and what drove the Guthrie and a few other folks to, to provide audio description? Either one can go first. Well, we had some really good patrons from the beginning. Rachel Parker. Rachel just turned 70 last week. Um, for her 60th birthday, she got a tattoo. I don't know what she did for 70. Um, but she hasn't been getting out to theater much. A lot of our core theater group is getting older and not coming, so our challenge now is to bring new people in and younger folks to get them into theater, which is easier to do with shows like Book of Mormon and, and Rent and things like that have, that have been coming through. Um, I think just as important as the patrons were it was the Guthrie, Pam Truesdell, and Hunters continued on this tradition of keeping the program alive and vibrant, um, helping out other theaters who want to know how do we get started. You know, a lot of times they'll ask us, but then we'll turn them over to Hunter a lot of times because um, he'll help any theater in town get more accessible. Um, Hunter actually does captioning but he's in charge of all the access services at the Guthrie. But, you know, we've, we've had a good core group of people, Juliet Silvers, along the years. Um, all the new people we bring in, some, of, some are gone now. There are a few people have left us. Um, but, you know, over the years, we've had a great time with a lot of good people, including Ken. Um, yeah, and I think one of the key elements of the continued expansion and need for audio description um, in live theater has been the willingness of the community not just to accept what was provided, but always striving to improve. Um, just to receive audio description for uh, somebody that doesn't have it might be an advantage. A bad audio description is better than no audio description, in my mind, in my world. But good audio description can make the difference between um, enriching your life because you've been to a performance and feeling like you've actually experienced it, just like your sighted companion might be with you. Um, that's We've been able to get there, um, and sometimes it's a messy process. Um, some describers who think they do a really good job um, may not necessarily ha have that same reputation by patrons. Um, but through the process of kind of working together and collaboratively um, in improving, under always the guise of improving the services and, and meeting the needs, um, we continue to get better. Um, so I, I again, I, I think there are there are many, many people that have come before, um, but together we have been able to kind of 
help guide this whole thing moving forward in a positive way. Thank you. I noticed at the registration desk there was uh, a, a suitcase full of body description receivers. So I'm assuming that those came from the Guthrie Theater, which provides the service of, uh, they have what, half a dozen suitcases of audio description uh, receivers, transmitters, and the portable steno mask that, can, that any arts organization in Minnesota can borrow for free, actually it's for 25 bucks a year, for batteries, yes. And they, they take care of providing, uh, well, generally, they make sure that the batteries are refreshed. Uh, but that's a free service that the Guthrie provides that uh, we're all grateful for. Over the years, a number of theaters have bought their own audio description equipment. So many um, venues now have their own, but the Guthrie is the one that provides it so that ev any little arts group or any conference can borrow those and uh, <coughs> make that event accessible. If a person requests audio description, often they will call CSA Minnesota, where I work, or they will call the theater, and we just try to work it out. Or they'll all call an audio describer, and, and he or she will say, I'm available, uh, let's work it out. Uh, over the years, uh, our funding, the way it, part of it got started, but Guthrie, again, took the lead. But then over the years, we had an, a nonprofit organization that provided uh, us, VSA Minnesota, with stipends so that any organization that wanted to provide audio description could get a stipend of half of the cost of what the audio describer or the ASL interpreter uh, would charge. So that made the initial bite less painful. Uh, that, se that series of funding ran out after about 10 years, and then if you might have remembered uh, hearing about Minnesota's legacy amendment. Well, the voters in 2008 passed amendment uh, that provided money out of sales tax revenue for free for clean air, clean water, clean theater, well, not actually clean theater, <laughs> the arts, the arts, uh, and a few other things. So we, we voters voted to tax ourselves uh, for providing those services, and we have that money uh, for 25 years, and so the money filters down from the people who pay for cars and things at the stores to go to the State Arts Board and then to each of our regional arts councils. Uh, then the money then goes to organizations who can budget in their annual budgets for audio description. That's what we suggest, that they put a line item budget for how much it's gonna cost audio description for a year uh, into their budget. They need to do that. That is a public service they were required, obviously under the ADA, to provide services that people need. And um, so that's one of the things that is an advantage in Minnesota where we have more arts money, again, I believe, than per capita than any other state. So uh, if you think your state can pass <laughs> a law uh, that would tax yourselves to provide free free services for in the arts and then pair it with something nice like the land and the water that we all need. That was a pretty politically astute move that people did a long time ago. The monthly publicity that goes out, we send out a calendar by email and then we have a website 
that uh, we list all of the audio described shows, who the audio describer is, description of the show, um, where it is, the price of the tickets, and in most cases, in the Twin Cities at least, there is an audio description or it's interpreting or captioning discount that you can get. At the Guthrie Theater, for instance, the regular ticket might be from 45 to $60, and it's $20, I believe, for audio description patrons. For captioning, uh, it's five bucks more for whatever reason, I don't know. And many of the other theaters, uh, you go to the Jungle Theater, you can get a $10 ticket that otherwise would cost you $40. So these organizations are doing this marketing in order to help people afford to go to uh, give them a season ticket at a discount, uh, to bring their friends, the, the reduced price qualifies them and a companion and most theaters will say, okay, we've got a couple of companions, bring them all in. We want to have a happy group. Yes? <laughs> okay, one of our wonderful theaters that has taken access to the max is called Mixed Blood Theater. It's been around for 40 years. This is their 40th anniversary. For those of you who know that Prince died recently, they were going to have their 40th anniversary party at his house, Paisley Park. And unfortunately, the lawyers said, no, we can't. So they lost tons of money. That's a, that's a side uh, journey. Anyway, Mixed Blood started in, uh, into audio description, ASL interpreting a number of years ago. And then they decided through a grant or something to caption every performance that they provided. Uh, and so they have uh, a caption uh, script, and they have a volunteer, and now they have a new grant to pay somebody to do it. So every performance that they go to is captioned. Their most recent grant will let them try a new system to audio describe every performance. So it's not, I'm not quite sure how it's gonna work. Lori probably knows, because she probably worked with them. They're still working on it, okay. But anyway, their philosophy is called radical hospitality. And they provide free tickets to any person with a disability to any show in their entire season, any time. Radical hospitality, free tickets. I don't know where they got the money for that. And transportation. So you can get a cab ride from your home in the suburbs to Mixed Blood and back again, see the show for free. They haven't yet worked it out where you can get a beer and a hamburger at the, <laughs> at the place, but I expect that they will do that. Uh, so for our panel, can you come up with another example to you that is a successful uh, instance of what audio description is actually doing now or, or in the past? Something that you recall, either tapping into that mixed blood thing or something that you can have experienced personally or something that really shows that this is why we do audio description. You know, always the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about um, really important um, moments that, that uh, just changed my perceptions of what was happening was a particular performance at the Guthrie. It was Madame Butterfly. And for those of you that may know Madame Butterfly, there's a, a, a play within a play. And 
the Guthrie was um, ha had had this run, and there was in the in the sub play that was going on. There was a small little raised stage that was the the second play that was going on within the main play, and there was uh, a scene between the two characters that were the leads of the show, and they were having whoopee. They were having sex. Um, but the important thing was the way that it was described and the artistic stuff that would have otherwise been completely missed by me and people like me. Um, it, you know, a, as artistic um, means happen, they do a lot of things with, with impressions. And um, so they were under a blanket and there were petals of a, a flower of some sort that were falling from the sky over this particular small stage on the stage. And to give the illusion of the sexual act happening, these petals, as they were falling down, they undulated. So they went up, they went down, they went up, they went down as they fell. And this was described in such a, a artistic way. It was, I, I was totally enthralled and I could literally see what was going on. Um, it was the most amazing experience for me. Um, being a part of that and afterwards when I talked to my partner who was sighted and we talked about that, he didn't even see that piece. I, I, I really think people with eyes, their eyes get in the way sometimes <laughs> with some of the really important key elements. Um, I oftentimes will leave a performance and talk about the set, talk about elements of the costumes, talk about the way the set moved from one scene to another, um, or the way that an elevator worked to bring up an actor from the floor um, that people don't even see. Um, but I get that description because we have excellent audio describers that describe all of those elements. Um, so it really has added um, to my love of theater and really has increased my ability to want to go to more theaters. I guess my answer would be um, on a personal level also. Um, I got into audio description not knowing very much about it at the time. And my reasons for wanting to continue doing it were kind of nebulous for a while. And they crystallized one night in the theater at the Guthrie when I was talking with one of our patrons. And he was a man who had had his sight for some portion of his life, I think into adulthood. And he had talked about how much he had always loved going to the theater. And when he began losing his vision, it became harder and harder for him to go to the theater and really uh, fully appreciate what was happening on stage. And he said eventually it, he became so frustrated that he stopped going. And he said, well, I, I guess I, that's just not something I get to have in my life anymore. And then he found out about us and he found out about the work that we were doing here. And we started seeing him at the theater all the time. And when I say he came to the theater all the time, I don't mean he just ambled down the block. 
He came from Northfield, which is a separate city, more than an hour's drive from here, but uh, he came to the theater. And so he and I were talking about it one night, and he talked about how hard it had been to lose something that he had taken such joy in, and what it meant to have that joy back in his life. And I thought, how privileged am I to be part of that experience in some tiny little way. And um, that, that really brought home the power of the work, the importance of the work. And that's one of the chief reasons I stay in it. Yeah, that was Joe Trigg who left us a few years ago. Just so you know, he wasn't a total saint. Every time he would, <laughs> I'm telling it, I don't care. Every, every time the man came to theater, it was the same joke. Every time. The usher would seat him, and he'd get settled in a little. Excuse me, excuse me, I paid good money for this seat, and I can't see shit. <laughs> every time. I could be in the booth, and I could hear the house might catch it. And I'm like, okay, Joe has said his joke. Let's get going. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, yeah. Um, you know, for me, early on, there were a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of incidents why it means so much to me. Early on, um, the Guthrie, we keep bringing up the Guthrie, they did um, Midsummer Night's Dream, and it was a really good production, and we had this state school for the blind from Faribault come in, and it was a group of like 15 kids, and we heard a couple days later that one of the kids had gone back and was telling another classmate about this particular scene and she repeated word for word what I had said and so it made such an impression on him that that was what he saw and what he was telling somebody else and I thought this is kind of cool it's making a big difference to somebody um, I tell the story periodically at the or Ordway um, when rent had come in again um, a man older man came up with tears in his eyes and said, you know, this is the third time I've been to this show, but it's the first time I've really seen this show. So it, I think the most rewarding stuff is talking to the patrons afterwards. You know, when you get groups of kids and they're, you know, they'll walk out, it was epic, Rick. <laughs> Love those moments. Um, the, the community itself has really grabbed onto it. I had to give Lori a show later this month, The Circus. The, the young people's circus that we do, because the Orpheum is having the Lion King in. It's playing right now. I think it's playing right now. Oh, it starts Tuesday. I, yeah. Um, but they're doing a special Saturday matinee, sensory friendly. I'm not really sure all what it's going to entail, but the lights are on. They're going to go halfway. They're, they're going to have signers. They're going to have me as an audio describer. They're going to do captioning. It's going to just be a big old accessibility circus. So I had to give up circus to do another circus. So it'll be fun. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what they do. So I'm constantly reminded about how important it is to people. You know, when I see Ken coming all the time to theater, it just, it makes me feel good. It's always fun to see Ken walking down the aisle. So that's my theater. I know audio description in uh, from state to state is a little bit different. Uh, it's done differently by various describers uh, and different 
formats, but in Minnesota, maybe we can just describe how it happens here, and again, differently for different describers. Um, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, we have our core group of describers uh, up in Fargo and Moorhead, which is northwestern Minnesota. There's one audio describer currently, and uh, she trained a woman who is now describing in Duluth, Minnesota, so there's one describer and I've never heard either of these women, so I'm not sure exactly what the quality is. Uh, the woman in Fargo takes it under her wing to call every one of the patrons who uh, would be likely to attend. She calls them in advance. She arranges the audio described date. She sets it up for the theater. Uh, and then she, she doesn't bring the people to it, but she uh, really is a mama chicken for, for them. They're now, uh, I believe they're going to be training a few more describers in that area, primarily to describe visual art, because they have a number of museums and art galleries that they want, the patrons up there want more description, and uh, they want a little bit more variety than just having one describer. In southern Minnesota, there's a, a professional theater in Lanesboro, which is under 1,000 people. It's a professional theater that runs 12 months out of the year. They describe one performance out of every run. Uh, Lori trained uh, a couple of their staff members, so a different person describes each show depending on who isn't in the show. Uh, and they discovered, after they offered it, that there was a blind man in town who had never been to the theater before, so he is now attending shows. I typically bring a couple of people down from Minneapolis-St. Paul, it's a two-hour drive, and they provide a noontime tactile tour of the set, so they get a feeling for the thrust stage, they get to touch some of the costumes, some of the key props, they get a feeling for what furniture is on stage, and then we go out for lunch, and then at 1.30 uh, they provide a pre-show uh, about the show that they're about to see, and then they go into the audio description, and the audio describer comes out of intermission, and we all have chocolate together, and she finds out if the uh, receivers are working fine. So that is one example. Uh, but how about here? What is, uh, can you maybe, Laura, Laura and Rick, go through a typical uh, day, or what, what you do to prepare, first of all, and then uh, how that proceeds through the performance and afterwards? Well, after 22 years, my prep time, I usually see the show once. The, the theaters are very nice. They give us comps so we can bring friends. Um, and then I, I don't take notes. I just remember the blocking. I, I, remember, th I remember scripts real easily. So, um, And frankly, if I had to see it more than once, I couldn't do 95 shows a year. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of... It's really hard, I, you know, it's like, how do you explain to somebody how do you breathe? It just kind of comes naturally and it happens. I, I don't know what else to say to that. Oh, yeah, I've done television, I've done s some arena concerts. I, uh, Bette Midler, Tina Turner, Dixie Chicks, Neil Diamond, a few things like that. Oh yeah, it was it was my day job. I worked at Caption Max. I helped them get their audio description department started. So I did that for about four and a half years. Then I went back to being just a happy person at the university. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, my prep time and prep, I, I don't take notes. I'll usually have the script in front of me. As long as I can have the script in front of me on my iPad, I can describe anything, so. Uh, my prep is, is probably different from Rick's because I haven't been doing this nearly as long as he has and I don't have the same facility and lightness on my feet that he does. Uh, I've li listened to him describe things on the fly and he just has such a fabulous uh, flow to his description that I am in envy of and um, I envy Lori's ability too to really capture even the finest details of a performance and I I hope, I hope to be as good as they are someday. Um, so I still have to spend more time preparing probably than some of the others in the group do. Uh, for South Pacific, for example, I watched the show three times and read the script obsessively, read all the press about the show. Um, watching a television interview about the show was how I finally learned how to pronounce the lead actor's name correctly, so I didn't butcher his name. And uh, so I try and put all that information in my brain. And when I first start that process, I never have any idea how those individual pieces will come together. I just uh, look at them kind of like little individual pearls and hope that someday I know enough and understand enough about the show to turn them into a necklace. So uh, my preference, is it, it's a little different for each show, but um, it kind of borders on obsessive sometimes <laughs> because I'm still learning. I'm not as good as these guys are. I do have to add from a consumer perspective. Um, you know, every describer is different and every describer has their own style. Um, we kind of fall into the, the cadence of just knowing that. Um, Sometimes I will choose a performance to attend because of who's describing. Um, I do have um, multiple seasons of fiction, so um, I always go to the described performances of those. But the others, oftentimes I choose based on who is describing um, and how badly I, I would like to see the performance. Um, the performance, though, or the actual production is secondary to me. If I don't have good quality audio description, it's not worth the frustration and the, the, just the frustration of dealing with not getting um, why everybody's laughing or what just happened. Something happened on stage, but I don't, my describer wasn't paying attention or didn't describe that piece. So some of that really um, gets vetted out over time. Um, I have to admit, though, that there aren't many Twin City describers that I avoid today. <laughs> that always hasn't been the case, um, but um, those describers are no longer with us. Um, they have chosen different things to do. Um, and I really do believe that the quality of our describers is just top notch. Um, like I said before, um, I leave with many, many more details and facts about costumes, props, set design, how the sets move um, than, than anybody else. Um, and they probably can't even read that in the program because it's not there. It's just knowledge that the describer adds um, in the pre-notes or in the pre-show notes um, or, or during or during the intermission. 
So uh, we really have hit a stride here that, that really works, and I think um, the, n the number of patrons that take advantage of it, I think, is the, is the result. Thank you. Uh, well perhaps we'll get to some audience questions here very quickly, uh, but I, I was thinking uh, one of the people that we mentioned earlier, Rachel Parker, went with a friend to New York City, and she attempted to find an audio-described performance in town and couldn't, and back here on that same weekend, there were like six or seven audio-described shows, so she again remembered why she lives here. Um, I don't know if uh, the tourism department has taken that into to heart to see, oh, this is a pretty good accessibly accessible arts community. Maybe we should pr promote that. Um, but in terms of, again, uh, what I was thinking of in New York is if you go to a performance and the audio describer hasn't a clue how many audio description patrons are attending. Whereas here, often the describer might be in the lobby greeting you, uh, giving you your equipment. Sometimes the theater does that for you. Uh, but they often, uh, like with Ken, they know, okay, this is Ken. He at one time had vision. I sort of know he, Ken might have told me at one time what he likes out of audio description. So I can sort of tailor my description to that. I'm sort of making this up. but. Uh, and other patrons are different. They like different things. They like costume description. They don't like costume description. They like colors. They don't like colors. They've never seen colors, but they have an idea of color. Uh, are there certain things, Ken, that you have uh, suggested from time to time to describers that you like, or uh, other patrons that you might think of uh, that have when you see them in the audience, you say, okay, I don't have to worry about this. Or if I see Rachel in the audience, she has some vision, so if I just say it's on the right side of the stage, look over there and you'll see da-da-da-da-da. Uh, and in my case, with you know, decreasing vision, that is really helpful. I, I, I don't have as much peripheral vision anymore, so knowing where something is on stage is quite helpful. But what, Ken, have you told folks that you would that would make it especially good for you and for the describers, what are the things that people told you that you'd try to accommodate? Well, I've, I've mentioned several of them already, so I'm not gonna, I won't go into that again, but um, the, the actual background information, um, the things that I don't necessarily have access to is the stuff that adds on top of the performance that I'm hearing um, and, and taking in the, in a uh, kind of kinesthetic way. Um, so for me, I want detail. I want everything. I, I want it all. And I'll decide what I keep in my brain and what I don't keep in my brain. I don't want uh, somebody to censor something for me. Um, I want them to describe what's happening. And um, the, the other piece that I think is really important, and it's been sort of touched on, but our audio describers are uh, connected to us as patrons. Um, they oftentimes are at the end of the performance waiting where we turn in our equipment, or and they always ask what was good, what was bad, what did you like, what you didn't like, was it okay, how can I do better? Um, that kind of uh, discussion happens frequently. So I think it's, it's another uh, kudos to our describers who 
don't want to just settle for doing what they're doing, but always want to strive to improve and, and get better. And that's really critical for me, too. Uh, Ken's right. Uh, uh, we have gotten to know some of our patrons. We love them. We think they're wonderful. And when I know there are particular people in the audience who have a particular preference, I will try and customize my description if I can, if the play will warrant it. Um, we have one patron that I'm thinking of, Juliet, who does not understand color, so she has said, you know, don't spend time on color, move on to other things. I really want to know the uh, more information about the characters and their relationships to one another. Um, Rachel, whom we've mentioned, really enjoys knowing more about the program notes, and sometimes I can s squeeze bits of program notes into the description. Sometimes I'll say to her, I'll meet you afterwards and read notes from the program to you after the show. Um, the other thing that is uh, fun to throw in sometimes is some of the dirt about the show. And uh, maybe an example of that. Uh, and this, this would be something that I think patrons, uh, our patrons would hear that perhaps other patrons wouldn't have access to. But here's my little example about that. I was describing a show called Pride and Prejudice and a whole lot of the set was moving. There were pieces on turntables, and there were characters carrying furniture in and out, and pianos and couches, and there was one scenic element that didn't move, and it was the backdrop along the back wall of the set. And it looked like it had been painted, but it had actually been dyed to give the appearance of the English sky. So it was England, so it looked like it could rain at any minute, right? And so uh, part of the screen had, had kind of a dark, mottled look to it, and parts of it had a lighter, fluffier cloud look to them, like those might be the places where the sun might come peeking through. And so I had a chance to talk with the te technical director after uh, a meeting at some point, and he said, yep, we, we, we dyed the screen to look like this, but I could tell also that it had color, not only color, but uh, texture and dimension, and so I asked him about that. And he said, well, we applied this texturizing material to the canvas, and we put less of it in the places where the clouds were meant to look darker, and then we piled up more of it to make the lighter clouds look lighter and fluffier. And the part I really enjoyed sharing with our patrons was that the texturizing material they used was kitty litter. <laughs> and of course, me, Miss Smarty Pants, I had to go right over and say, does the set smell like the cat box? <laughs> And he said, well, yeah, I really did for about the first week, and, and now it doesn't anymore. And so when I had a chance, of course, I marched myself right over to the backdrop and sniffed it, and it didn't smell like that anymore. Um, but we get to share fun little production details uh, that not everybody gets to have access to as well, and um, that's a whole lot of fun. How do I follow a kitty litter? I, yeah, I did puppetry of the penis. I think the last two years ago in Vegas, I told a story. I I knew the patron who requested the description, gay man. He was very nice, and I I described. I I told him things, and I told you know I I knew who I was talking to, so I know how I could. Well, it wasn't until after the performance that I remembered that a reporter had been listening in, was doing a story. And she quoted me on a couple things. 
for me, the, the thing is... <laughs> no touch toward this one. No, they didn't allow it. I did ask. Um, for me, there's a fine line between equal access, which I believe is our mandate, and special access, which we don't necessarily provide. Um, the thing about the kitty litter, uh, the Guthrie also has uh, <laughs> discussions with designers and things like that. You could find that out if you went to that. But, you know, so that didn't cross the line into special access, I don't think. You know, and, and I, I bring... I bring out things, little things in the performance that people might not notice. Sighted people, like, you know, sighted people might not notice things. I've done Christmas Carol now for 22 years at the Guthrie, and it changes. And lately, they've had street lamps in the Victorian street, in the London street, and there are, are two red-headed buxom women with low-cut dresses hanging out under a street lamp. I point that out. And then later in the show, one of them is carrying a baby. So, um, but I, I do point that out. And people, I think people kind of think that's cool to know that happening. But that's something that a sighted person would know if they were paying attention. It's, it's really just paying attention. That's the whole big thing. Um, our friend Juliet, <laughs> crazy woman. Um, if, it's a, if it's a family, Juliet, like we said, has trouble with relationships. She doesn't remember who's mom, who's sister, who's... So instead of saying the name of somebody comes to the door, we say mom comes to the door, sister goes out, things like that. To, so it keeps it fresh in her mind. So we do cater to the people that we know and, and try to provide the services that will make the play more meaningful for them. Uh, we've talked a little bit about our our patrons are getting older and we haven't quite yet found the, the magical cure to find new audience members. So um, whether we have suggestions from the audience or our panelists, uh, that will be a challenge to us uh, going down the, the road. There is a, a place called Vision Lost Resources here. There's, of course, the American Council for the Blind Chapter. Uh, other, uh, there's a blind school in Faribault. So some of those people are making the effort, as you mentioned, Joe, when he was alive, would drive an hour here, or he wouldn't drive, but he was driven. Uh, of course, with the new self-driving cars, maybe that will <laughs> make a difference. Uh, there are different ways that we, from VSA, suggest that organizations try to reach out to new people, but those are, are sometimes less successful uh, groups uh, like from Vision Loss Resources, I can remember, uh, and maybe some of you were describing some of those shows, they would occasionally bring 30 of their members to a described performance of history theater. Um, those numbers seem to have gone down in recent years, and that just might be, you know, they don't have the time, the staff has changed. Uh, I don't know that it's that they, want to s they don't want to see audio-described shows, but there are challenges that we're facing uh, any suggestions, either from the table here or out where you are, of where we can find and what we can do in addition to what we're doing now, getting the word out, making sure the describers are good, which they are, and as you can hear the words they're using today, the descriptive words that these folks are using, and at, uh, uh, off the top of their heads, 
that is that is really a key that makes a really good describer and which I appreciate. Um, any other suggestions for how we can find new audiences and what we can do to make sure that they continue to get into the theater and the other venues too, concerts and so on. So it used to be that blind patrons were not employed. They were uh, stay-at-home people, not necessarily because they wanted to, because they couldn't get employment. Their social lives, we just weren't as independent. Today, that's not the case. We're oftentimes employed, we're busy. We have very full lives today. And we're mobile, we're independent. Um, the, the structure that's been established is when there's a run for a, a theater performance, there is an advertised, described performance. One, maybe two. On a rare occasion, maybe three if it's a really long run. But it's a preset date that is established that that's going to be the described or the access performance. If that works in my schedule, I'm there. But oftentimes, it may not work in my schedule. I'm really busy, I do a lot of stuff, I sit on a lot of boards, a lot of advisory commissions. Um, so if I'm not there, it's usually because I have a conflict. Um, there is a what mixed blood theater, and in full disclosure, I have to admit, I am on their disability advisory committee, um, has, some, has received funds to try something new. And it was something that I discovered when I went to New York for five days and saw five plays and none of them I could get description for um, because they don't provide description on request. Um, they do have a service that I found out about that we're gonna try to implement at Mixed Blood. And that is the describer will describe the performance the first time it'll be recorded and those recording snippets will be connected to the light changes, the light cueing changes electronically, so that anybody at any performance could listen to the pre-recorded descriptions. Now, is that perfect? Absolutely not, and it's not perhaps live, but it's going to be description on demand for that any show in that performance run, and I think that type of approach is going to be more attractive to the ever-growing busy blind people in this community. Um, I don't think people choose not to go to the theater uh, on purpose. I think they would go if it were more convenient to their lifestyle. And today we're just way too busy. So hopefully that will make, uh, you know, and it's not gonna be perfect out of the box but maybe it, we can tweak it a little bit and improve on it as we go through. But, but that's, again, one of the advantages that we have with legacy money, legacy access to the arts fund, where theaters can be creative in trying to figure out how to, how to address these situations a little bit more with some funding to back that up a little bit. So that's, anybody else? Any suggestions out there that you've seen in other <laughs> states, in your own states, uh, of, of uh, 
where patrons are coming from. Uh, Joel is bringing a mic to the I back am. of the room. I am. Jennifer. We have just started a push in Kansas to start meeting with the theaters that we partner with. It's all provided through the Audio Reader Network. Um, we meet with the theaters, and I'm encouraging them to push out information about audio description to their season ticket holders. The idea being that if you reach out to a sighted audience, they will likely know someone who could benefit from the service and therefore be able to tell them about it. So trying to educate a broader audience about what it is um, because we target the visually impaired audience very well through our radio station, but obviously we're not getting a huge group there. <laughs> that's, that's a good suggestion, and I would just tag on to that by saying in St. Paul there's a group called Park Square Theater that has gotten a number of grants to make their space and programs more accessible. They put in an audio description room or a quiet room at the back of the theater so the audio describer now has a place to be. The uh, executive director has a member of his family who uh, has benefited from accessible services over the years and they've made a policy anytime he's in the theater he will give a pre-show talk and every single time he talks about the accessibility of their shows and now they're doing four caption shows I think next year is a two audio described performances and a couple of ASL interpreted performances but they make that pre-show announcement so that right the sighted and the hearing members of the audience hear that and if they have a friend or a relative who could use that service they are told in no uncertain terms that it is available and I believe the price is half price Mark you have a yeah, I, I, you guys are doing an amazing job. I, I'm, I'm jealous beyond words because in, in Denver, I think we get maybe 12 to 15 performances total over the course of the year that are described. Um, and the tickets are not discounted at all. Uh, and so getting people to go when ticket prices are usually in excess of $100 a ticket is, is tough. Uh, most of the blind people I know are either making minimum wage or they're unemployed. And they're, they're not going to they're not going to go. So you guys have deserve a huge amount of credit and kudos. Um, truly incredible. Um, in terms of, 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 you know, younging up the audience, I know that, you know, even in New York City, this has a been a recurring problem. And it, you know, to some degree, it's, it's not what you guys are doing. It's the material. I mean, you know, Hamilton, Book of Mormon will bring in the younger audiences. Um, and the, the more that we can get theaters to, to create contemporary theater, I think you bring in that new generation of audiences. I mean, Hamilton in New York is doing incredible stuff, clearly. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I, you know it, it's, I don't know that I have a suggestion other than changing the material, but you guys are just incredible. Kathy, did you want to? I, I, I think this is already covered, but you, uh, somebody touched on the radio reading services, uh, and a lot of those are, um, are, not geared for, but a lot of older adults hear it, and you're looking for the younger younger set. So that's. You know, the I was just going to make a comment, John. The, the one of the first um, experiences with description at every performance was in the '90s with a group called Access Theater, out of Santa Barbara, a touring theater company, and it toured with an audio description script. 
Kim Charlson was with us, er, uh, us earlier from Boston. She mentioned that uh, generally all theater performances in Boston that are described are described from a script, a describer preparing that in advance. Um, and indeed, in Washington, D.C., our own audio description project received a grant, much like Mixed Blood, this is uh, two years ago, uh, to fund a uh, describer, one of whom was JoLynn Bailey Page right here, who made description available at every performance of Fiddler on the Roof at Arena Stage. And again, done from a script so that it's, it's uh, thought through, it's, it's uh, you know, quite reliable in that sense. But the thing about scripting, uh, I too, is in my way of thinking, touring shows, um, they ought to come with audio description. You know, it ought to be produced uh, right along with the show, in rehearsals, et cetera, tour with an audio description script and uh, as one of the assistant stage manager's responsibilities, that person should be able to voice it on demand. Now, of course, that <laughs> cuts out the local folks from being describers or at least writing, preparing description. Perhaps they could voice it locally. Uh, but again, this idea of, well, Ken said it so well, hey, blind people have schedules too. You know, two performances uh, out of a 60 performance run? Uh, come on, that's not fair. Uh, to, again, to tap into what was just said, uh, the touring shows that come here, uh, we have uh, several theaters in Minneapolis, one in St. Paul that host touring theaters. The they, they are some of the only ones that don't offer a discount to people who are blind. Uh, the people who are deaf, who need to sit near the front, near the interpreters, they can get a ticket uh, that's at the lowest price of the theater to sit in that section. But the audio description supposedly can be received at any price category in the theater. So they use that excuse not to provide a, uh, an audio described discount. Um, our local theaters really do, for the most part, buy into the fact that they w this is an audience building tool of audio description. Uh, a few years ago, Molly Sweeney yeah. was a touring show of the Guthrie Theater, and I believe they talked about sending an audio describer to along with that show because it was a blind woman who uh, was healed and uh, you know became seeing at the end of the show. But they didn't. I don't believe they did that. For maybe it was. It wasn't necessarily a cost. They probably. Well, I won't say. John, uh, I we, I have have a, we have one more thing. Oh, we just uh, right along with that comment though. Um, you know, in Washington, D.C., ironically, the home of audio description, where I started with this in 1981 with Margaret and Cody, um, we have just a terrible time with attendance. I mean, I think that is a responsibility of every theater, but also of the group that produces description, like DSA Arts, or coordinates the description. When we did it at Arena, you know, they might get, might, if anybody, they might get two, three people for an entire run of a show to use the audio description. When it was available at every performance, of course, that quadrupled. So it was a benefit to the theater, and these people are paying buying tickets. So I thought I'd throw that in. In many states, there's also a fringe festival that happens at some point during the year. In uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, it started. There's one in Washington, D.C. 
the Fringe Festival here, which is August 4th through the 14th, has for years had an accessibility policy where they, A, they do a site survey of every site to make sure that it's wheelchair accessible and the bathroom is wheelchair accessible. And they do a site survey, and if it's not, it's not a venue. They have for years, um, Rick and I believe Lori have, have helped them schedule audio-described performances. So during this 10-day period, there are, every, there are like 175 or so productions. Each has five performances. Um, with patron input, sometimes, uh, about 25 of those shows are selected for audio description. 30? 33 performances. <laughs> so, so that, I believe, puts our Fringe Festival at the most accessible. There are a number of ASL interpreted events, too. So again, it has originally come from, um, as I recall, Eric Peterson was a, a part of their access committee. You know, it became a nice thing to have an access committee and to include people with disabilities. Well, when they started to talk with Eric, they thought, well, this isn't such a nice thing after all. He's actually asking us to do stuff. Uh, and of course he was. He was the most, a lot of four-letter words you could use for Eric, but he got stuff done. He was persistent. I remember going on a tour with him, coming back from a festival. We went to the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. Uh, we wanted to tour it. He went up to the counter and says, I want an audio-described tour now. I've only got an hour to be here. I want an audio describer right now. And they said, they don't have an audio describer. And he kept, he wouldn't leave. He started getting louder and louder. And uh, they said, well, let's, let's see, you know, we have a few things in our tactile tour. Uh, let's, let's show you those things. And it reflects the other things that are available here. The tactile tour took care of Eric and we got out of there without him being thrown in jail. <laughs> so that was, that was a pretty good deal. But you need those advocates. Susan Platt uh, has a comment. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know whether this comment that I'm about to make ad addresses the need to help recruit younger people, but I, I can speak to um, something that sometimes is a barrier in California where I live, which is transportation, especially to theater in the evening. We do have a, um, it's, it's called paratransit outreach, and they will help you, but some of the problem is you can get there, but you can't necessarily get back. And um, something happened about a year ago that was kind of wonderful. Um, there, there is, um, there, there's a theater works um, where Mark Messersmith actually describes. There's a, a performing arts center in Mountain View, California, and there's one at the Lucy Stern Theater in Palo Alto. And we, um, there's also a local blind center for adults called the Vista Center for the Blind. It provides various services. And I and some other folks did a little workshop there on audio description about a year and a half ago. And um, a lot of the adults at Vista who are into our recreational activities, they're in the hiking club, they're in the yoga class, said, wait a minute, we want to go to theater. And so they started, I think it was a year ago summer, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was last summer, started buying tickets ahead of time and we had an audio describe night and some of the, um, some of the O&M instructors at Vista who work at Vista would drive the van 
we would all meet, we would go out to dinner in Palo Alto, we would go up to the theater, and, or in Mountain View, we'd go to the theater, we'd get our headsets, and we'd listen to the show and to, to Mark. I don't know if that gave Mark palpitations, because I don't know that much about how many <laughs> receivers there were back there and anything, but I can tell you that it's a hit, and that people really like that experience. And just like when you go out with any of your friends, you come out after the show, you wanna, what'd you think of that? What'd you think of that? Let's go talk about it. Um, when you have a group of people, you know, that you're going out together and you have a way, a transportation way of getting there together and you have your tickets together, um, it can make an enormous difference to, to what happens. And um, so those, uh, that's, that's kind of a neat uh, way to, you know, to make that happen on, on given nights. And um, I think, JoLynn, I may be remembering that, that Steph Kirkland in Audio Eyes, don't they have a, a, a buddy who... In Vancouver, um, Steph Kirkland, um, <coughs> excuse me, has a company called Local Eyes and a wonderful website that's fully accessible. And uh, they, they have, they train describers, they provide them to theaters and have developed a program called Theater Buddies, which also address the problem of transportation for the patrons. They either make sure that a volunteer meets a person at a metro or bus stop, or, or I'm not sure exactly how far they go in terms of the actual transportation, but they build a package which a participating theater can um, take advantage of, and I don't know what the fee schedule is for that. They, they've got grants now which have helped a great deal and made it possible for more theaters to um, participate, but it's been very, very successful. Indeed, in Seattle, uh, arts and visually impaired audiences, Jesse Minkert, who's uh, right up there with about, not, not, hasn't been doing this as long as I have, but maybe 30 years or something. He has the package funded where uh, you buy a ticket, you get transportation, um, you get a discount on the ticket, or it's free, I can't remember, and you get transportation, and you get a sighted guide. So, um, uh, part of the whole thing. Great. I have a question for two of the panel members uh, on behalf of the Audio Describers Bureau. Uh, I, I'd like to follow up uh, with um, Rick because you said uh, if, if I have a script, I can describe anything. And Ken, you said I like to, I like to hear about everything. You basically said I like to hear as much as possible so I can experience it as possible. As describers, we are taught lots of things. Don't say too much, don't say enough, be precise, choose your right words, uh, have the proper emotion, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that we teach describers is try to fit between the actor's words. Don't step on the actor's words. In fact, there's just a side of the story. We had a describer at a preview where there was a professional actress there and she asked what the person was doing up there. The director said, told him what the guy was going to do. Yeah, she said, you mean she's going to talk when I talk? And so we really don't want to, uh, we, we're not supposed to take away, we're just supposed to add. So I'm having a little trouble understanding how, and you didn't say literally, you just look at a script and do a description. But the script seems to me to be just a piece of it. You have to do the previewing and understand the flow. I want to know how you prioritize not stepping on the actor or actor's words 
and Ken, I'd like to know how you feel about the prioritization, when it has to occur, et cetera, to be able to fit in a site gag or something like that. Where does that fit in your priorities? Well, the site gags, a lot of times I'll set it up beforehand. I'll say this is gonna happen so quickly, I won't have time to explain it fully, but this is what's gonna happen. So I, I, I don't like to ruin it, but sometimes you have to do that. The script is nice to have because during set changes and scene changes, it's dark and I can read the stage directions from the script about what's about to happen, who's going where, why, why this dish is out, something, you know, things like that. Um, I, I don't like talking over lines. I, and Ken will tell you this too, that if it's a musical, I, I describe even less because people came for the music. You like the music. I, you, you didn't come to hear me talk about it. So I'll let the, I'll, I don't talk over a lot of music. Um, if there's, I forget what I just saw, something with where there was a big argument with a bunch of people and five people were screaming at each other all at once, me talking over that's not going to really make any difference because nobody's going to hear every word that's being said anyways. So there are, you know, extremes like that that I think we can work with and, and you know, it depends on the play, depends on the moment, depends on what's going on in the room, I think. Well, and, and when I said I like a lot of detail, um, oftentimes um, the detail is front loaded. Um, during the pre-show notes, uh, the description of what's gonna happen can happen and that can be quite detailed. Uh, so that when it actually does happen, um, I, I know what's going on. Or, or there can be just a brief um, reminder of that's what was described earlier. Um, so that's often uh, one of the tactics that the describers use in the Twin Cities. Um, and generally, the describers, I mean, that's a cardinal sin is to speaking over the actor's line. So most don't do that. I mean, occasionally there might be one or two bleeds, but it's not really intentional. And, um, you know, and as far as the musicals, I'm sure everybody has their own preference for things. I just know that when Rick is describing and it's a musical piece, I'm not gonna get that description of what blocking the actor that's singing is doing or what, um, physical actions that are happening, I'm gonna get the music. So it's it's just a choice that, that everybody has to make. And, um, and I also understand there are other people that might be listening that have different preferences than mine. Mm. So it, it's kind of a give and take uh, oftentimes. And I, I think I mentioned this before. Um, little or bad descriptions <laughs> are better than no descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> I always say the opposite, Ken. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Dan Spoon had his hand up. He's the chair of our Audio Description Project Steering Committee. I would add uh, quickly, though, that Vocalize, for instance, in London uh, and, uh, and some other organizations I can think of that work with live performing arts will use their websites to offer description, offer a lot more detail, and make that available to uh, their, their patrons. Uh, that's one way to skin that cat, if you will. Sure, I just want to 
to kind of share a consumer story from uh, my friend Dan Dillon, who um, is associated with the Mid-Tennessee Council of the Blind in Nashville. And they've worked with uh, a person who's helped us some on, on some of our advisory uh, committees, Lori Ward, who was um, part of the TPAC, Tennessee Performing Arts Center, and she did uh, marketing and community uh, director work. And what she was able to do, uh, she collaborated with the Middle Tennessee Council of the Blind, kind of what Susan was talking about. And they, for their, perf their perform Broadway Performing Arts Center which series, they have six shows. She's able to negotiate with those shows, and she gets balcony um, uh, audio-described seats that she negotiates for $20 a ticket. And then on top of that, the Middle Tennessee Council does fundraising and subsidizes that $20 ticket for $10 and supports it and has a group of 20 people that go to, to their audio-described performance every, every show. In fact, they're at the point now where they have more members that want to go than they have tickets. But like Susan says, it, it's an evening out, so they plan a supper activity prior to the performance. They may go socialize after the performance. They coordinate transportation to get there. TPAC has coordinated a specific drop-off and pick-up spot so blind people are not intimidated to get dropped off and picked up. So it's become a real collaborative effort, but to me it's one of those kind of hallmarks where they actually you know, have a waiting list and they have 20 people that go to every one of their audio described performances there at TPAC. John, I think there's time for a couple more questions, uh, perhaps. I know, uh, you know real quick, uh, I'll, I'll come to you, Rick. A real quick question that Joe Lynn had was, how long are your pre-recorded, uh, not pre-recorded, but necessarily, but your uh, pre-show notes? 15 to 20 minutes. 15 to 20, okay, yeah. Go ahead, uh, Rick, and then Chuck um, has a question. Guthrie has, yes, or Saturday they did, they probably had a lot of people there, but they have trained staff who just come on audio-described days, so they only work with blind people. Um, I was trying to pay attention to the time for the show. Go on. I'll You'll remember. Chuck. Thanks. Um, yeah, I've been an Access Equity Association member for about four decades now, and I've done hundreds of shows across the country, and I'm horrified now to realize that none of them have ever been audio described. Um, I live in LA now, and I've chatted with a couple people here about equipment and things, but do you have any suggestions as like someone, you know, sort of on the inside, how I, the next show I'm in, I could say, here's, here's a few links, or call these people and some resources to learn about why you want to have this show audio described. I mean, I can tell them what I know, which at the moment is very, very little. Uh, look up the Guthrie Theater and, and find Hunter Gullickson. He'll talk to anybody from around the country. Gullickson, yeah. Um, one of the things I was going to mention was when we talked about talking over lines, the ideal is that we don't talk over lines, but it's going to happen. And I'm, I'm reminded of my ex who, as a student, would listen to the talking book radio, have the TV on, and plus be writing a paper. And he could do it. <laughs> I, I can't. I, you know, I, I'm old. I need to concentrate. 
but you know, there has to be some trust that we're intelligent enough to be able to take two inputs for a couple seconds, maybe, if we have to. I'm not going to purposely talk over the Gettysburg Address, but I may talk over the last or first two words of it. But, you know, there's going to be some overlap and some bleed, I think, and, and people, people are understanding about that with live theater. Oh, I was going to try and answer your question. Um, I've had this experience with some of the smaller theater companies in town where they say, you know, we'd like to offer a description. We really don't know how to get started. And I will often work directly with them to arrange the night and reserve the equipment and all that. And what I typically say is start small. Start with one performance or one show. See how it goes. See what you learn. Hunter is a fabulous resource. I'm sure Joel is an equally fabulous one. Um, but thinking, oh, we have to do audio description for 900 performances is probably really daunting. <laughs> Starting with, with one show or uh, one season might be a good way to get going. The, the other thing I would add is there are groups of visually impaired um, organizations, I should say, of visually impaired people all over. So I, I would think that in connecting the performance with one of the groups, or even engaging with one of the groups to figure out what would be an appropriate night or, or event would, would add to, or be an insurance that there would be an audience. Um, if you just f focused on offering the performance, it may or may not get out to the right people. Um, it, and it's going to grow over time. So just understand that as well. It'll start off slow, but it'll pick up because word of mouth spreads pretty fast. Fred and these others. Did you? Uh, Richard, did you have a question? Or when I'll, I'll come back. This is a question to Ken. Um, if you think back to those describers who are blessedly not describing anymore in your life, <laughs> Were there some common characteristics of why you did not like them uh, combined with some comments that you could make to help describers who are reasonable describers or maybe not good describers? What should we avoid? What bothers you? What detracts? What leaves you thinking that was not a great describer? Yeah, right, right, right. My, my, my biggest pet peeve is Censoring. So, you know, I'm a big boy. Tell me what's going on, and I can decide whether I like it or not. But we had one. This was this was the end all, beat all. Um, it was a performance of um, Greece. Yes, <laughs> Greece. And Rizzo in one scene is reaching over with, I don't remember what his girlfriend's name is, and reaching over and copying a field. And the describer says, uh, he's, he's reaching over and doing something. <laughs> so I reached over to my partner that was with me, and I said, what's going on right now? What did he just do? And he says, oh, he just copped a field. And I'm like, okay. So you know, there are other examples, um, but it's that censoring piece when somebody thinks that they need to filter for me. Um, I, I'm perfectly capable of, of hearing and understanding, and if I don't like it, 
that's I have to deal with that. Like that's that, that should be described any of that stuff. And th what made it worse was this describer in particular that I'm thinking of would be where you turn in your equipment or be at intermission and find you and say, how am I doing? What, what, is, what do you like? And I, I would always say, don't ask me unless you want to know. Please don't <laughs> ask me unless you want to know. Oh yeah, I want to know, I want to know. Okay, then I'll tell you. And I would be very honest with that, and but it never changed, so. <laughs> Um, let's take a quick question from Richard, and then we'll wrap. Thanks, guys. This is this has been awesome for me. I'm just loving every moment of this. Um, so, can 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 you just elaborate on that? So, can can the description ever get too casual? Can it be too slang ridden? Can it be too? Can you swing too far the other way and and add character that becomes distracting? I guess it, you know, there's always that possibility, um, but I, I think I have the ultimate control. So I think in, in kind of that kind of a situation, I think of somebody who's giving me way too much stuff, and in giving me way too much stuff is stepping on lines and, and not following the protocol, so to speak. Um, I have the ultimate control to turn my volume on. I've done that before. Um, and then I'll turn it on when I feel like I need to be brought up to speed. Um, so I, I think, I, I don't know if, that's if that same thought process goes through every visually impaired patron, um, that they are the person that's in control. Um, this service is being provided for my benefit, for people like me, for our benefit. So I should have some input into how it's being provided. Um, it doesn't mean that I need to have absolute control of how it's being provided. It's gotta be a collaboration. It's gotta work, it's gotta be a partnership, it's gotta be a dance. Um, and we have to work knowing that other people have other needs that might be different than mine. So it, there has to be some, some room to wiggle. Um, and that can only happen when there's communication. That somehow there's got to be some really good communication, other than tracking people down and asking them how they're doing. Um, that puts me on the spot. That puts that potentially that person on the spot if they're not willing to listen to what's being said. Um, and invariably, someone would ask me that question, this particular person, would ask me that question when I'm in a crowd of my friends and totally interrupting what's going on socially to get some feedback. And that's just not appropriate. No, no. So, yeah, hope that answered. John, you wanna, oh. Okay. Sure. One of the things that we do when we train people is, is we tell them to stay with the language of the show. So if you're doing Book of Mormon and they call certain body parts certain things, that's what we'll call them. You know, we're not gonna get clinical on you or anything because we, we wanna stick it with the mood of the show and, and not, and not take you out of it. Maybe backing up to the person th from Equity who was asking for some suggestions. Uh, one possibility is, as I think Ken said, is there are groups of people all, all over the country. Maybe if you can find some of those groups and say, we've got this show coming, uh, 
can you give us uh, an email saying, we would like to have an audio described performance when you come to town. One of the things that I do when I send our monthly emails out, yes, all the things that are listed for the people who want the audio described shows, that's what they'll get. But at the end of the list, I'll s list some of the things that are coming up that are not proactively described. And I'll say, if you want to hear an audio description for the show, this is the phone number, this is the email address, call them or it won't be described because these people are in the dark ages. So you need people like Ken, people who find out through whatever sources of what's coming up and they need to make the request. It's got to be driven by the patrons. I can send emails to Juliet. I send many emails to Juliet to say, this is a great show, it's happening in Osseo. Uh, you can take Metro Mobility to get there. They don't shut off before the show is over. You can get back home again. Um, so, But you need to find those people and encourage the advocates to speak out and to make the request. Uh, yeah. So far we haven't had any, well, we haven't had any lawsuits here for a long right. time, not <laughs> since Eric died. That's exactly what I was going to say in closing. Um, you know, three little letters, A, D, A. And the Department of Justice has been actually quite active in pursuing museums. When they get a complaint, even one person saying this museum is not accessible to me, I'm a person who's blind, they have gone to those museums and said, uh, A, D, A, and that museum has developed an audio described tour, uh, and it's coming with performing arts. I can assure you of that. Um, I know of that. Wow, thank you so much, John. And, and this has been great. Ken and Laura and Rick and Laurie, thank you for being here. This has really been wonderful. Can we take, uh, we'll just take a minute to let our next panel uh, come on up and um, take their places of broadcast television and audio description. This is going to be great.
Shall we reconvene, folks? All right. We, um, we will move very smoothly now from live performance to broadcast television and broadcasting. And, um, you know, this all began in performing arts, but the advent of description on television did so much to increase the use of description and to, to make description visible, hello, if you will. Um, and, and so description on broadcast television and in movies is really so critical for description in performing arts and in museums. And Matt Kaplowitz is here uh, from Bridge Multimedia uh, with his colleagues, and he'll introduce this panel. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, description. W basically, what we've been charged to do is give everyone, particularly the individuals new to description who are hoping to uh, find employment, we are charged with the uh, opportunity and the responsibility to try to give everyone a good picture of the landscape of what's out there for uh, description jobs, um, paying jobs, non-paying jobs, and everything in between. And uh, what was interesting was as we were planning this panel, and we were discussing this panel, what emerged from it was a very good understanding for us. I came away just from, from what we started with so far as a better sense than I had ever had. And my sense to convey to everyone is if you only leave with one word to keep in mind what the landscape is for employment in audio description, the word is hats, as in wearing many different <laughs> hats. Because what is clear to all of us is that a job in description is not like getting a job as a butcher or as an accountant where you train you do some work and then every day you go to work and you're a butcher or a sea captain or a lawyer or something. It's a very, very different thing. And I think it's important that for people thinking about employment and description that we manage expectations. Uh, I'm fortunate to have with me three of the truly major leaders in this business, starting with, Rick, I hope it doesn't say anything about your age, but one of the pioneers, <laughs> uh, Rick Boggs, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Rick uh, before he's up. Diane Johnson, um, who is the, uh, Rick is the founder of uh, 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 Audio Eyes, and Diane is the founder of um, uh, uh, descriptive video work, 
and thank you. And uh, uh, Peter, of course, is part of AMI, and we will tell you more about that. Uh, but again, just to set the stage for what we're going to do, we're strictly concentrating on how this relates to jobs. We're not, this isn't a job fair. It's not a place where we're going to say, here's where you apply for jobs. It's not a job fair. We're not going to take your time for us to tell you war stories as far as what everyone goes through in this industry, um, having the door slammed in their face. And we're not going to preach to the choir as far as the need for more employment in this area. Uh, these are areas that have been covered very well. We're just going to stay very close to how, where the jobs are, what the jobs are, and what you have to do to get the jobs. It's jobs, jobs, jobs. Our plan is to leave a full half hour for Q&A. So hopefully at that point it can go wherever we want. So this man on my left, on your right, Rick Bobbs, founder gen and general manager of Audio Eyes based in LA. Rick has been making audio production tools for audio pro uh, professionals with vision, vision loss. Not only does his company have great legacy um, since 2003 in description, but also in the tools so that people who are blind themselves can be part of the making of the products. Um, Rick received the um, California Governor's Trophy at the National Business Leadership Conference in 2003 for his inclusive employment practices. For 30 years, Rick has been a proficient Pro Tools audio engineer and was the first totally blind engineer to use state-of-the-art recording software. Rick's innovative audio description quality control workflow empowers professionals with vision loss to add value to the description process. The audio eyes describers, engineers, and producers who deliver description for broadcast television networks, educational programming, corporate and government agencies include the California State, uh, uh, State Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, the National Park Service, and the government agency we all love the most, Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> Rick employs numerous uh, blind and disabled vi voiceover artists, recording engineers, and quality assurance specialists. Rick, Rick was also the 2013 um, recipient of the Audio Description Project's Memorial Career Achievement Award in Audio Description. So now Rick will speak about employment possibilities in network and cable television programming, particularly what these jobs are. So Rick. Thank you, Matt. Um, well, I'm just glad that there are so many people that are interested in audio description not, um, and when I say that, I mean, sure, people look for jobs and people look for careers and people look for things to do uh, that are interesting, but my experience is that people that seriously consider audio description as a profession have a passion 
for this kind of work. They have some kind of, there's something appealing about it to them. There's some, they want to do it. They want to do it uh, if it pays, if it doesn't pay, whatever they've got to do. There, I've just noticed the people that get involved in this service, uh, in providing this service, end up being passionate about it. And I really think that um, if uh, sort of a chicken and the egg kind of thing. I don't know what comes first because I almost, to me, I feel like if a person isn't really passionate about it, they probably won't stick it out because it's not a really easy road. Um, wearing multiple hats, as Matt brought up, uh, is can't be emphasized enough. I always tell my staff, uh, you know, if you want more work, learn how to do more stuff. Uh, this, I will tell you all that that you are, you are. Um, Sort of, we are at a, at a fantastic time, point in time, in the development of the audio description industry. We're at the front end of what I would call a, an explosion phase in the in the growth. If you look at the pie, you consider how much description is there in the world. That pie is now growing a many fold per year, whereas you know from 03 to 13, it probably grew less than 10 percent each year. So. You're considering getting into a, a, a profession that has a lot of opportunities. So I'll quickly go through the, the kinds of jobs and tell you what those responsibilities are in producing a description for television. Um, first of all, uh, the, the only uh, job that I've for which I've never hired a, a person, person with vision loss is an audio describer, the writer, the script writer. You've got to be able to watch the media and see in great detail, accurately uh, assess colors and objects and things like that, and write a script. Uh, in our company, you need to become proficient at using Excel. We use uh, Excel as a formatting tool. We have custom macros that we've made. So uh, your computer skills, you've got to have good written and verbal communication. You've got to work with other people well, as you'll see, because the audio describer first describes, uh, writes a description script you got to learn to understand a little bit about time code and how it works, and you've got to be proficient using various media players, uh, whether it's a, uh, an electronic media player, um, uh, there, and there are different ones, and we, we need to be able to use different ones for different reasons at different times, depending on what media we receive. Uh, you need to be able to work quickly, and as is true, well, particularly for audio description writers, but also for all the jobs I'm about to tell you, um, as Matt mentioned, this is not a just like getting a job down the street at the department store. You can't just fill out an application and get a job and go to work. It doesn't work like that. This is more of a craft like acting or writing or I, I know carpenters used to do this. It, you ha there's a period where you're an apprentice. You have to do an apprenticeship. People uh, that start working at, at AudioWise at the beginning, um, I always say you, you have to become eligible for paid work. So you start out. You're, you're learning to do this. So you've received training somewhere, you come, but now you've got to go through our training. You have to actually do some work, and it's, it's generally uh, without pay, although there are exceptions to that. But it's, it's, at very least, it's, it's a reduced compensation program because I don't generally pay people to train them. So uh, until you have demonstrated that you have the skills to produce quality scripts in the time frame that we need, it would be dangerous for me to put you on a job because broadcast work has to be turned around very, very quickly, sometimes very frequently in three days or less. I can't have you mess up a script because there's no time to redo it all. It has to be done right the first time. So you've got to work on some work that actually isn't on a super time uh, crunch and it's not real work that we're delivering to a client first 
so that I can find out whether you can deliver a good script in a short amount of time. So there's the audio description writer has to be able to work quickly, work accurately, have uh, skills with word processing software, Excel, and then be able to work with other people in the QC process. Okay, now we get to the next job, which is the quality control specialist. We have two kinds in our company. We have the sighted person who is checking the accuracy of the script. You read the script and watch the film and say, hey, is, uh, you know, if, this, if it says the person holds a remote control, are they really holding a remote or is it a shoe or is it an iPhone? I had one writer say that someone was holding a candle. Turns out on QC I found out it was someone with an iPhone with a flashlight on. So, you know, these things happen. So some other per sighted person has to watch this stuff and determine whether the script is visually accurate or not. You also, um, the scripts also go through a, a um, QC process where a, a trained blind expert consumer that has viewed at least 100 hours of description has been through a description writer training, not just any blind person off the street who's never seen description before because all the research shows any blind person that hasn't had a lot of experience basically likes all description because it's good to have it. So how can you be critical if you haven't, ex you know, how do you know if you like Coke best if you haven't ever tasted Pepsi? It's kind of like that. So uh, our description quality specialists are blind people who review the script and listen to the media and they say, hey, this language is ambiguous or I don't understand it or what does that mean? We've, we have different, I don't have enough time to explain it all, but we have different ways of doing this QC process. We have live where the people work together, uh, in which case then a, uh, sometimes our, our um, script quality supervisor, the, the sighted person that reviews it, will at some point ask the blind person, so what do you, basically they play the description and they say, so what do you think is on the screen? And now we have the blind person try to describe it back based on the description and give as much detail as they can. And if they can accurately describe it, then we know the description was good. If their interpretation is inaccurate, then we know the description, no matter how beautiful it sounds, is not effective. So there's the, um, the script quality supervisor, the first one I mentioned, and then the description quality specialist. So there's QC jobs is the point of it. And again, you have to know how to, the principles and the tools, all of our QC people go through description writer training, AV training like to become a writer. That's the only way, if you, you gotta understand what, it, what the writer's priorities and choices are and how they work if you're gonna QC their work. We don't think that there's another way to do it. Um, okay, so voiceover. There's a voiceover, um, obviously someone's gotta record the voice. Um, sometimes, you know, there is an advantage in having the writer do it because they know their script and they can work pretty quickly, but when you're producing a whole bunch of programs and you've got a full slate of stuff, sometimes the writer's writing or not available and then scheduling all these people to do these jobs at the right time is difficult, which leads to another position, which is a scheduling position. You wouldn't want that job. <laughs> Someone's gotta do it though. Um, so, voiceover is voiceover. You gotta, um, and there are professional standards for voiceover and I, again, I don't have time in this short presentation to get into what those are. But the voiceover artist comes uh, to a professional, you know, quiet voiceover booth with a microphone, wearing headphones. Uh, generally, and not everybody does it this way, but it's pretty common. Uh, the voiceover artist will hear the media. We queue up. We we don't start rolling the thing and then record the whole thing in one shot. You queue up to the where the descriptions are, and um, so you'll be able to hear the media and play, and then um, uh, speak the text that's on the script. Some places do it without playing the media for you, but. Some places they allow you to see the media. There's a mo the monitor in the booth with you. Some places don't. So um, those are some of the details of the environment of a voiceover artist. But uh, there is a director. Someone's got to direct the talent. Um, in our case, occasionally it's also the audio engineer. Occasionally it's a separate director. But the director should have been someone who has viewed the material. 
If they don't know the material, then they don't know the nature of the scenes because you're not watching it all the way through. You're just doing scene to scene. So how do you know what the what the um, the dynamic of that scene is? Is this a quiet love scene? Is this a you know what what's the sort of context that might influence the the delivery? So a director that's familiar with the material is part of the process. In a voiceover session, you'll have the director, the audio engineer, and the voiceover artist which is the segue to the other uh, job position, which is an audio engineer. You'd be surprised how many description writers uh, in my company have learned to become recording audio engineers just because they want more work. They want to, you know, everybody in our company knows the whole process of this business. They don't all do everything, but they all understand what everybody else does. And everybody in my company does more than one thing for sure. Um, occasionally, we have outside voiceover artists that we hire who are just voiceover artists and they don't have anything to do with but they do a, a few things like this and all of a sudden they're asking about whether, you know, so uh, how do you get into the QC of this thing or whatever. Um, audio engineers, there's basically three, three types and one person could do all three. Sometimes it's different people, but uh, a recording engineer will control the start, stop, playback, determine, you know, the actual recording. Then an audio engineer has to edit the tracks. They clean up the tracks, take out the breaths, the various mouth noises that go on when people talk. Um, and uh, and then they mix the audio. They adjust the program levels. Uh, you know, pull the program down, put it up, push the voice. You know, make it so that the voiceover level sort of, in our case, our, we aim to match the 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 uh, sound and and intensity of the characters in the program. So uh, those are the three different types of engineering tasks that there are. And then finally, um, there is. Uh, the script supervisor, sometimes we have live at the um, at the VO session, someone that's going, you know, what the director, but usually the director will, will double that way and make sure that that what is on the script is what is spoken. You gotta make sure that they read it correctly because a great voiceover artist can say a line that sounds perfect, sounds like they got it right, but actually it wasn't what was written down there. Um, traffic coordinator, as I um, mentioned, someone has to schedule all these people and make sure that, and know how long does it take to do things and who's faster and who's slower and what, you know, they've got to, coordinating all the jobs that are going on uh, effectively and efficiently is a really, really hard job. And uh, I have a very, you know, uh, tough time finding people that want to do that job who also do it really well. Um, and then, you know, sometimes there are jobs maintaining the computers, the systems, uh, the drives. This kind of work is really hard on, on hard drives. You, you got to, uh, you have to archive the work. You got to make sure that it's you know, been archived properly and that the systems are running and that, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. So there's definitely technical IT type jobs involved in description. And all of these things, again, it's a, it's a team effort. Uh, we don't operate in a way where people just pay attention to their little niche and don't know anything else about anything else. So knowing the whole process really well is an advantage. Um, there's, you know, the last thing I would say is this. If you uh, are interested in working in audio description, um, learn the process of it in as much detail as you can, and then try your hand at different aspects of it uh, and see what you know, where you excel or what, what you like the most. I tend to try to put people in the things they enjoy the most because I feel people do a better job if they like what they're doing. Um, and, uh, but be willing to do what you gotta do and understand it's 
pretty stressful, high speed in the broadcast world, very high speed, pretty stressful. The stuff gets kicked back for bad reasons and good reasons and whatever else, and you have to sort of be on call to fix your mistakes. And anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a hairball crazy kind of a, of a um, world, and there's not enough uh, of it out there really to you know, have full-time people doing just one task per se, but it will be that way in the next three to five years, no question about it. So. I wish you all the best of luck. Now, I have the pleasure, one second, if I can scroll down here. Okay. So, I have the pleasure of introducing uh, a respected colleague and another person who uh, effectively runs a, a productive description operation. That is um, Diane Johnson, who founded Descriptive Video Works. Vancouver, I believe, in 2003. And, um, oh, Diane has described over 16,000 TV programs and 800 features in three languages, uh, at least, that I know of. English, Spanish, uh, Punjabi. Um, and, you know, they serve clients like Netflix and uh, uh, A&E History Channel and other uh, other all kinds of um, types of clients. She's a founding member of the Canadian um, Described Video Broadcast Committee, and she was recognized as one of the top 100 female entrepreneurs in 2011. That I must tell you is is a something that I I particularly respect a lot because being an entrepreneur is probably even worse than being an audio describer. She's a recipient of the Ernst & Young um, Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2011. And uh, in 2014, uh, she received an award here, uh, Audio Description Project, in the Audio Description category. So, um, Oh, no, 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 the most, the coolest thing. Check this out. So, so she pioneered live audio description for broadcast television. This is something that we've known was coming down the pike, and uh, I've had opportunities to discuss this with networks. It's pretty tricky uh, how they go about it and persuading them that it can be done well and all that sort of thing. So hats off to Diane for getting it done. Am I wrong with NBC, sorry? CTV, well, that was your first one, yeah. Um, but she described the live uh, version. Well, she described it live. Describe, put it this way. More normally, video description for television is recorded, pre-recorded and delivered, and then you know the network pushes the button and plays it over the air in sync with the real show. Live audio description, as you know, for theaters and stuff, is not common on television, almost unheard of, and uh, they, uh, Diane did it for uh, The Wiz uh, live in the United States. So hats off to live description in the United States, and I give you Diane Johnson. Thank you very much. That was a good intro. <laughs> um, I'm today going to talk about live description. We do a lot of regular description, but we started live um, with Descriptive Video Works about six years ago, and it came about in an interesting way, very similar, Rick, to how you were saying, that everybody said, oh, you can never do live description. It just doesn't make sense. It would be too hard to do. You couldn't rewind a tape and redo it and all of that. So when the CRTC in 2003 mandated audio description in Canada, 
I sat with the CRTC people, some of the broadcasters, and we all laughed and went, well, that's something you know, you'd never be doing. So six years later, CTV came to me and they said, um, and I'd already been doing all of their uh, audio description regular work, they said, what do you think, should we try live description? And I was like, oh really, you wanna do that? And I said, well I guess you're not gonna fire me after working with us for six years if we screw it up. So we both know that we're gonna go into this and do the best we can. So uh, I said to him, you know, when do you wanna get started? And he said, well we've got the Juno Award ceremony coming in two weeks, how about that? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, and I love, love, love challenges like that. So I thought, okay, well let's try it. And that was the first that we did uh, six years ago. And since then, uh, we've done the London Olympics, the Paralympics, the Sochi, Sochi. Um, we've done a lot of sports. We do a lot of our, um, like we did Canada Day, a uh, number of things. We work with AMI um, on some of the uh, Paralympics that we're doing. Um, we had, and it was interesting because when we did the Olympics for CBC, um, four or five years ago, I went to NBC and I said to them, you know, you should be doing the same thing in the States. We're doing it in Canada. We can do it here as well. And they kind of went, no, we're not doing live. And I thought, okay, fine. And um, three years later, they came to us after we did the Wiz and said, you know, would you like to do that? So you never know when things are going to come up. So who knows when that sort of, you know, when something like that's gonna come through. So when NBC phoned us and talked to us about doing The Wiz, we were thrilled because to me it's a whole new area of description that I think is going to grow. And I think it's wonderful that um, it takes a different type of person to do live description, it really does. Um, it takes somebody that, you know, you have to do the research ahead of time. So you think about if you're describing a government um, project that's going on that's live, like if it's the election or something like that, you've got to know all of the people that are going to be um, you know, on that show. You've also got to really research the commentator and find out things like where he's taking a breath and when he's gonna pause so that you can put description in there. You can of course never talk over the commentator and you also have to make sure you're not repeating the same things as he said. So there's a lot of elements that to me take a lot of practice doing them. Um, you know, the other thing is tone. When you're doing live description, it's not the same tone that your narrator is using with regular description. It has to have a little bit more emotion in it because it's live. An example would be um, if you were um, watching a gymnast on the, in the Olympics and a blind person hears the audience go like, oh, oh, that's too bad, oh. And the commentator's going, oh, look what happened. And of course, a sighted person knows that the gymnast fell and she slipped or whatever happened, but the blind person doesn't know that. So our job is to make sure that we add the emotional element in there, but also explaining what's happening without overdoing it so that the sighted person as well you know, isn't feeling they're getting too much information. Um, the other thing is respecting the music, which we of course know that we respect the music when we're doing any of the other, um, you know, work that, audio description work that we're doing. The music is important that you know sort of when you can insert description. So there's a lot of things like that. One of the things that we've done is we've done focus groups with 
the live audio description that we've done after we've done it and, s you know, and ask for the feedback. Did we do a good job? Where could we have improved? Um, I usually go at it by saying to them, I don't want you to give us a, a lot of credit here and kudos. I want to hear the things that we could have done better because we want to do it better every time that we do it. Um, we do a show every day and have been doing it for about three years and it's live. It's uh, for Discovery Television and it's a science type of show. It's a little bit different because some of the segments we get are already, um, they've already been produced, but most of it is live. So you're on all the time. Like you really have to watch what you're, that you've done your research, first of all, and I'll tell you of a faux pas that we did when we were doing, uh, I can't remember if it was the Olympics or what it was, maybe, I think it was, anyway, I can't remember. Um, Michelle Obama was in the audience and there was somebody that looked exactly like Barack Obama right beside her. So our narrator says, there's Michelle and Barack Obama there. Then the commentator said, uh, Barack Obama couldn't make it today, so so-and-so's filling in. Well, I was actually in the studio at that time and both of our eyes just went like this. And you can't say, oops, I screwed up, let me redo that, because you're rolling, I mean, you're live. So uh, that was, you know, sort of, that, as far as I know, that's the only time that we've done something like that. So you really have to do your research. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of different aspects um, of live description that we do when we're talking about sort of the job part that I know this is what our um, topic is about today. Uh, to me, it's something that really takes a lot of practice, a lot of experience to be able to do it. You need to be a describer to start with. You have to know audio description. You also have to be able to work well under pressure. Uh, there may be a show that you're doing that there's a lot of opportunity for description, and there's another show that you're doing that really doesn't have that much opportunity for description, but you have to know when you can jump in. So you're actually listening to the breath of the commentator, so you know when there's time to come in. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that uh, I can add to that. You know, sports are another thing that um, I love doing live description for sports because people will say, well, doesn't the commentator tell everything that's going on? But there's things like one of our commentators said when he was doing golf, the one of the um, golfers had two different colored socks. And of course, a sighted audience could tell that. And so he was able to say, well, he's wearing you know, a yellow sock and a red sock, which of course adds to the flavor. You want to add to the flavor, to the emotion, to the entire experience for, uh, for the audience. And that's what we love doing. Like our, we just finished doing Canada Day. And uh, our two describers that did it live were saying how much fun it was this year, because as most of you know, in Canada, we have a, a fun new uh, prime minister that's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really fun for them to be describing that. Um, yeah, so I really, I love what we do. I love the fact that we can make television accessible. So I'm uh, very pleased to be here today, and thank you very much. Uh, Diane, just yeah. one more one more thing you had mentioned previously was how sometimes writers who start as screenwriters migrate into description writers, and maybe yeah. you could just take a quick minute and mention sure. that too. Yeah. Um, when I look at all the describers that we have, 
They come from very different backgrounds, but a lot of our describers are screenwriters that are waiting for funding for their film or for their feature film that they've been working on for years and years. And as we all know, it's very hard to get the funding. And so they love what they're doing because they are actually writing. And they've told me it enhances their screenwriting by doing audio description writing, which I love the fact that you know it works hand in hand like that. So instead of working at Starbucks or something while they're waiting for the funding to come in, they can do something that they love to do. And we find that some of the screenwriters are some of our best writers. So does that cover that, Matt? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I uh, will now pass it over to uh, Peter Burke. I'm going to introduce him. Um, Peter and I have known each other for quite some time. We work closely with Accessible Media Inc. Um, Peter is the Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Accessible Media Inc. Uh, he's been in marketing and communications with media and uh, advertising for about 25 years. And he takes all of those skills and does an amazing job with AMI. He's done rebranding that I'm blown away impressed with. I think they've done a phenomenal job. They've really moved from an area where a lot of people didn't really know what they were doing to a really great brand that has become very, very well known. A lot of that has to do with the work that Peter's done. They do excellent research. Uh, Peter's in charge of the research panels. Their panels are highly engaged in what they're doing. Um, they really go into detail, making sure they've got the information that they need. Uh, he's also spearheaded an outreach program with a program that we have with the CRTC um, called Let's Talk TV, and it's basically going to uh, the public and saying, what do you want in your television, which is brilliant, and Peter's had a lot to do with that. Uh, he also has another major asset, <laughs> and that's his daughter, Molly. Who lost, she lost her sight completely when she was 14, and she's a really phenomenal girl. If you have a chance to YouTube Molly Burke, she's done some amazing things. She uh, has her own YouTube channel, and uh, she's a host on AMI now, and I've just seen her progress with things that I've watched, and she's got a huge supporter in her dad who really understands what it's like to be in her situation. So uh, I pass Peter on to you now. Thank you very much, Diane. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit, I guess, about the Canadian experience. Is that okay? Okay. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the Canadian experience. So first, maybe by show of hands, how many people have heard of AMI or Accessible Media Inc.? So it's going to be about 10% maybe of the audience, which is not surprising given where we are. Uh, so AMI, Accessible Media Inc., is a Canadian, uh, Canadian company. We're actually a not-for-broadcast uh, company. And, and we actually have three television licenses, one which is an uh, English-language audio service. And then we have both an English and French-language described video TV channel. So all of our content is available with described video seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, and uh, so we are kind of in a unique experience. I mean, um, actually, as another show of hands, how many people have been to Canada and, 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 and sort of get a sense of the country? Okay, so about the same as who are aware of AMI. So again, about 10%. So think of it this way. Canada is the country that the U.S. would become if Bernie Sanders won four consecutive terms. Ah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
we're, 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 we're kinder, we're gentler, um, and maybe a little more progressive. So uh, we're, um, pro I think behind the UK, we're probably the second uh, most productive country in terms of having described video available uh, within broadcast television. So AMI said we're, we're all of our programming is available with that. Um, and then all other broadcasters have to produce currently about four hours a week of described video programming, not unlike uh, what it is uh, here, except it extends beyond the top four. It's essentially all uh, broadcast channels. And over the coming years, that's going to actually significantly ramp up. Uh, so but that by September of 2019, uh, virtually the entire primetime schedule uh, for all broadcasters in Canada is going to require described video. Uh, so there's going to be increasing demand um, uh, for describers. Uh, as that as that uh, thing goes, um, so within AMI, the other thing we've sort of helped do w w within the industries in in Canada, and we've worked with BBW and, and a number of other firms for a number of years, we've developed a, a, a shared set of best practices, and we started working with that as a as a group under the auspices of the CRTC and their encouragement, and we do that with uh, the Canadian broadcasters, uh, producers of described video, uh, as well as uh, consumers involved, so that there's sort of a 360-degree agreement on what makes for good description. And the first set we, we produced was what we call post-production best practices. From there, based on some of the work that, again, BBW uh, pioneered and, and AMI has been doing as well on live description, we developed a set of live described video best practices. And the latest thing that we should be releasing by the end of this summer is what we've termed integrated described video, which is a somewhat different approach, and, and it applies to certain sets, types of programming, that increasingly is being produced, uh, which is really sort of how do you actually take an original uh, program concept and without having to add described video after the fact, you actually have somebody who reviews that program concept and the sort of the show scripts and tweaks it so that you're basically integrating description into the actual show as it's being developed, uh, which creates opportunity for more and more content to be described. So we've gone from a, a scenario where it was only post-production now including live, to now all sorts of other types of programming that might usually don't lend themselves to post-production because it's not like you have a scripted program. So for, for reality-style shows, um, talk shows, that kind of thing, this idea of IDV, integrated described video, really opens the doors for new types of description. Um, and that those best practices will be available on our website, um, ami.ca, by the end of this summer. Uh, you'll be able to sort of find those and, and look at those. Um, so when I think about sort of where some of the opportunities that we see, so again, we're kind of slightly unique in that w we produce our own described video. We also outsource a significant amount of described video because one of the things the CRTC wanted to do is, is to actually grow uh, the business. So they didn't want, when they granted us our license, they didn't want us uh, sort of sucking up all the energy and the, you know, all the air in the room and sort of removing it. So they really wanted us to help kind of foster the industry. Um, and We've seen with the growth of, of described video and, and firms like BBW that led the way, um, there's room for this industry to definitely grow. Increasingly, if, if, if the U.S. Is, if, the, if Canada is any sort of uh, portent of what the future could hold in the U.S., one of the things I think we think about is that as the number of requirements for described video hours has increased, uh, broadcasters, in fact, are starting to push the requirement down to producers. So rather than sort of buy the program and then it's up to the broadcaster to describe it and broadcast it, they're basically going to producers and saying, you deliver me a show with the described video already in it. So I want a fully packaged show. And when you think about it, the cost of adding described video is minuscule 
to all of the other production costs involved in putting a program together. So it only makes more and more sense for producers to start to carry that, carry that load. Uh, but increasingly, it means there's going to be opportunities at that level um, uh, for, for jobs. The one thing I think of that, that probably makes the, b the biggest advice I could give people thinking about this career is you're not going to find jobs listed you know, uh, where you'd find traditional jobs. You really have to think about how do you create your own opportunities. Um, it really is a, 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 an industry where your creativity, your intelligence, your drive, your perseverance will create those opportunities. Um, and when you think about how the industry is changing, you can start to think about where some of those opportunities may be. Uh, another area of growth certainly is, as is, is Diana's touched on, the, this area of live duty. When you think about the reason why prescribed video is being mandated, it's really to enable people who are blind or partially sighted to participate more fully in our society, to be able to have those water cooler conversations. And uh, nowhere is that sort of more dominant in, than in, in the area of live, live television. It's, those are the major events that people sort of still gravitate to. Um, you're not going to watch you know, the Academy Awards on a repeat three days later. You're not going to PVR it and then watch it later. There's no point. So I think increasingly um, smart, smart uh, broadcasters will increasingly want to increase the amount of live description they do simply because that's going to increase the opportunity for their show to be, to be watched and for their ratings to increase. The other area, of course, is multilingual. We heard uh, yesterday with the uh, FCC suggesting that as they expand the requirements for description here in the U.S., that Univision is going to be that fifth, that fifth network. So now all of a sudden you've got this huge demand and increase in, in requirements for Spanish. Uh, so if you've got uh, multiple languages behind you, you can now look at, think about description across multiple languages. And as increasingly like firms like Netflix look at pushing their content globally, there's going to be a requirement to have description across multiple languages. Uh, I think another opportunity is, is, again, with when you think about how the industry is changing. Again, as we think about ourselves as a broadcaster, uh, first and foremost, we also look at how is the broadcast industry changing. Increasingly, you know, cord cutting is, 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 is continuing. Streaming services are taking more and more people's viewing time. Uh, and increasingly, those streaming services will be you know, required uh, to add described video. Uh, so, you know, Netflix, I think, has sort of led the way. And, and again, up to it's up to consumer groups to continue to keep that pressure on uh, because that will force those groups, largely some of these groups are operating in unregulated environments. Uh, but consumer pressure can sort of start to get them to take that, that, that ball on and, and, and move it forward. So th I think there's going to be increasingly opportunities with streaming services uh, to have more and more of that content described. And I think there's two other areas that are kind of completely new and, and, and I think create, again, that idea of, of, of creating your own opportunities. When I think about what's happening broadly across media, you know, if you're under 30, you don't watch television. You watch YouTube and you watch user-generated content. You, watch your, you get all your content on Facebook and, and that kind of thing. And increasingly, more and more user-generated content is out there. And I think there's a huge opportunity for the savvy uh, YouTuber uh, content creators who are constantly looking for new ways of growing their audience and reaching out for them to start looking at how do they add description to the content that they're creating. And there could be roles for people to help either in the development of, of their own training of how to, how to enable them to do that themselves or in fact help them do it as an after the fact before that video actually gets posted to add those elements to it. Um, because increasingly, the, you know, as uh, what we've seen in, in, in with our own website and how we do it, the minute you start adding uh, description, the minute you start adding the keywords that go along with that description, it helps with the search engine optimization of the content and the site, 
which just grows the audience, which is then then in turn enable more advertising opportunities, more revenue to the channel. So it's in their own self-interest to, in fact, describe that content because uh, what they can what they can get in eyeballs and advertising revenue can more than offset the cost of actually needing to describe that content. Uh, and lastly, and perhaps I think most interestingly, um, is is anyone aware of the, the app that Pixar uh, launched recently? So, great. So when you think about that, increasingly more and more apps are going to be out there that are going to allow you to sync the Scribe video to the actual um, uh, uh, video that's being played out. So whether it's being played out your, uh, through your television or on a movie screen, people are going to be able to get an app, download a Scribe track, and sync it. And which also creates opportunities for a, a basically, you know, um, user pay model, where you could actually look at describing your content and actually having users pay you directly because they can then sync that through the apps they've got. So I think there's increasingly, as the media world changes, going to be lots and lots of opportunities. But again, it's, it's up to creativity and perseverance to kind of look at creating that. So I think that's all. I'll leave it at that. And at, at this point, let me turn it over to to our our chair, uh, chair of this panel and, and, and Matt Kaplowitz. Uh, Matt is the founder of Bridge Multimedia an accessibility organization dedicated to supporting all facets of universal access for entertainment, education, commercial, and government applications. Bridge's audio described video uh, appears on ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, and CW. Bridge also provides accessible media to Fortune 500, everything from outward-facing YouTube channel content to corporate communications in a variety of formats. Uh, Matt is a member of the Bookshare Diagram Center's Technical Advisory Committee, the Disability Work Group of the Clinton Global Initiative, FCC Summit for the Communications Needs of Individuals with Cognitive Disabilities, and was recently appointed a Special Advisor to Congress on Disability. As if that isn't enough, in his spare time, Matt is also a music producer and sound designer uh, with nearly 20 broad Broadway shows, including some primetime Emmy winners. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Matt. Thanks, thanks everyone, for uh, your presentation so far. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the presentation, the, the conference, the, this meeting is about television and other media. So uh, I'm other. Uh, and uh, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about where the work is in museums, in education, in uh, public performance, uh, and in related activities. And uh, really, where where I, I want to uh, speak a little bit is sorry I just want to make sure I'm watching my own time here. Uh, what I want to say is that this is like any other profession, where you start at the bottom, you start from the ground up, and the difference is when we start at the bottom or at the at the beginning maybe is better, is community engagement. The difference between working as in the area of audio description or in disability versus being a butcher, like I said earlier, is this is all driven by social engagement. Everything that we're doing, everything that all of us are doing is driven by social engagement or we would not be here. Uh, consequently, what we find in this giant world, I'm based in New York, I mean, you know, eight million people and so on. You know what, I, it's no different. It becomes, over time, you discover it's a community. You discover there are 50 or 100 people 
who are the decision makers, whether it's in the mayor's office or whether it's in major museums or in major cultural institutions or major philanthropies. It's still a handful of people. And um, Rick really said it best. Create your own opportunity. Um, there's, there's no better way to explain what happens in this field of many hats than create your own opportunity. So what do I mean here? What I mean here is these, uh, these museums that Joel was talking about earlier in the day that uh, don't have anything, show up at their doorstep, find the person who is in charge of education, and tell them you're ready to work pro bono for a short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> doing descriptions, doing uh, audio tours around the museum, doing whatever it is they need. Show up, offer your services. It's the same thing if it's public spaces. Um, I'm thinking about uh, places that are maybe some, somewhat of a combination of a museum and something else like a zoo. Every community someplace has a zoo. Show up, offer your services, go in and start doing the work. Um, similarly, uh, we're not all Minneapolis. We're not, we don't have, I mean, these folks from Minneapolis are talking about how virtually everything in the state they've, they're paying attention to. I mentioned earlier in the day the prime not-for-profit organization in New York City doing descriptions for theater just declared bankruptcy. Um, that's the world we're in. And all of us that are committed to social engagement, we start the ball rolling by volunteering because the same people that are giving you free work are the ones that will be giving you the paid work. And I'm talking not just a small town, I'm talking literally it's the same in New York City. Maybe the process is a little bit more complicated, but it's, it's, it's truly the very same process of, of beginning there. The, that's, so that, that's really the thing. And, and another area is schools. Um, sometimes schools will have a blind student, um, uh, and, and a blind student arrives, and even if there's an office of disability services, nobody knows what to do with the blind student. Um, I ended up going to Carl Charlson on a couple of occasions, reaching out for other resources for people. But regardless of whether there is a need to help them with uh, their studies or with, you know, one thing that I've seen done is folks like us make ourselves known to the Office of Student Services at the beginning of the school year and say, do anybody, does any, do, are we going to have any students, whether they're learning disabled or blind or whatever, that just need help learning the lay of the land? physically speaking. But what then happens is the school needs services and they remember who came in and offered their services pro bono and that's the person they're going to call. You've already created trust. You've already created a relationship. You've already demonstrated your, committity, your, your commitment to the community. And, and on the grassroots level, on the getting in the door level, that is absolutely the way it gets done. Um, 
The other, th the other thing I want to say is other areas to be aware of, to have on your radar, is first of all corporate. There's more and more um, pressure on large corporations to provide accessibility. They're supposed to, but now finally something is, is happening with it. And the other area, believe it or not, is advertising. Um, Bridge Multimedia, for example, is on occasion contacted when there is a socially engaged client, advertiser, and they want their television commercials to be audio described. What does that mean to anybody in this room? Same thing. Make your, make your, own, make your own activities happen. Go to the local television station. Go to them and say, <laughs> you know, and I'm just thinking of this now from what, uh, from what Diane is saying. I mean, is it amazing what Diane has done with these things? Go to your local television station and say, if there's a live event and you would like it described and you can figure out technically how to do it, I'll do it. I'll do the first one for free. Not the second one, the first one. Um, and so it's really community engagement on that level. And just to sur sort of quickly circle back from what Rick said, make it happen from what uh, Diane said. Think about all the new media areas from what Peter was saying. Think about the, the YouTube opportunities. And finally, what I'm saying is, something I learned a long time ago is, the first rule of selling, in this case, it's selling yourself, the first rule of selling is ask for the order. What that means to you is, don't be afraid to walk in, to make an appointment, to walk in someplace and say, I have these services and make, make it known what you can do. I think that's the end of this part of it and I want to first of all thank our, my sure. co-panelists, but now open this up for questions from, uh, from the audience. Indeed, and let me, uh, since I have the microphone, I want to just respond to a couple of things real quickly, and then and I'm sure you guys have a lot of questions, but this is an amazing panel, uh, amazing group of important people in the audio description field. Uh, with respect to colleges that uh, Matt was just talking about, uh, professors show videos in their classes, and I can't tell you the number of college, uh, I've done a great deal of description of these short videos, sometimes long videos, just recently, we did UC Berkeley wanted they, they want ten feature films described because one student at UC Berkeley is in a film appreciation class. He's blind, and that's that's work. That's great. And if you've already ingratiated yourself at a university, you're in well. Um, also, the the app that uh, Peter was mentioning, uh, and hopefully should have Paul Saihaki uh, with us by Skype tomorrow from Pixar. Um, they're getting uh, one of our awards tomorrow. That uh, app can also be used in performing arts settings. Uh, uh, my company worked with, um, uh, for a while, experimenting with Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas to make uh, a, a recorded and a downloadable description with somebody's own smartphone uh, accessible to folks. Uh, and Cirque du Soleil, something like that that is almost run by computer 
And the same happens in New York with Sound Associates, except that's light tuned and you use you know, their equipment, that kind of thing. So the downloadable, uh, I, that's the future of audio description, I think. And I, I think Rick might even talk a bit about that tomorrow in his, his remarks at our luncheon. Uh, finally, I wanted to say, um, I, I love the, uh, the notion, I think uh, Peter mentioned this, about uh, building the description in from the get-go. You know, universal design, that's come up a number of times. And speaking of Canada, you know, Deb Fells at Ryerson University has been a, she was one of our, our keynote speaker, uh, what, in Vegas, right. Uh, boy, has she done amazing things with creating work that is audio described as it goes, and it's hilarious, it's wonderful, it's just a, an aesthetic innovation. Lots of great stuff going on in Canada, which is so good to know because, you know, if a certain person uh, wins the election in November, uh, Canada's population is going to swell by, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's questions for our esteemed panel. <laughs> on that note, yes, Chuck. <laughs> They're all the idea of going to one of my local TV stations, well, I live in Los Angeles, so they're <laughs> fairly large. Um, but I, I'm stupid enough to do that, to walk in and say, hey, blah, blah, blah. But, but then I'm terrified they would say, yes. So clearly, one needs some experience before taking <laughs> your <laughs> Yeah, um, but I guess in, in a smaller, an easier thing to do would be then hit museums and things like that. Cause it, it, that I don't know why you would go to the television stations if it's something you think you can do. Well, right, never having tried it. I, I mean, my ego is big enough to think that I can <laughs> do it. I just don't know that I want to find out on a, a stage that large that I can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? But. I guess you, you did it, and you're still alive, so. Um, anyway, that, that's an excellent idea, and keep an eye on your local papers for some strange mushroom cloud in Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, okay, Zen, did you have a? Yeah, sure. How do you gracefully make that transition from doing it pro bono to getting paid. We've been providing free audio description to our local community theater for the last 12 plus years. And they're nonprofit and we're nonprofit. And how how do you how do you go to them when you've just told them, hey, now we're doing two nights next season because we have season ticket holders on two different days. Plus we'd like you to pay for it now. How how do you phrase that? <laughs> Manage expectations. Um, it's really, it's really the critical point is when you come in at the beginning, and s and, and say that you're willing to, for a short time, uh, do it that way. And actually, it could be you know it, it, the situations vary, but you might go into one venue and say, I'll do the first season at no fee, but it's going to be up to you guys to raise funding to find a funder and maybe when they see what the audience is and how good the work is and how the audience builds, that will help you get funding. And um, then hope that they, th that they 
they see the value of it and the value is demonstrated. But you have to have the you ha you have to have the self confidence, uh, which also goes back to yes, if if you're just a rookie disc driver going on live television, that might not be the best career path. But uh, you know, probably a little a little a little experience would help. But um, but it, it's really it's really to go in and not just say I'm going to work pro bono, but I'm going to work pro bono for the first season or for the first month or for the first day or for the first exhibition or for the first semester, and um, then we're going to have to uh, revisit this, but, but just oh. in a positive way. Oh, okay. Fred's going to answer the question. Uh, Rick, Rick wants to add something. I just, I just want to say, just on the on the two comments, I've to the gentleman uh, in Los Angeles, um, uh, I encourage you to, to uh, contact me. I'd, I'd like to talk to you about doing the description, but uh, the the TV thing is is a uh, tricky, particularly. Uh, it's because it's a network, and the TV stations independently don't usually. There's very little that they do that's outside of what is given to them by the network feed and that sort of thing. So. You know, maybe at a KTLA or or um, the Channel 13 one who changed their call letters. I can't remember what they're called, but maybe those guys can potentially discuss. I think your chances at a CBS, Fox, or NBC, and I've already you know talked to those people. I've done tests with them and that sort of thing. It's it's a pretty tricky business. But regarding the um, the lady that has the uh, you know you've been providing description for free for 12 years. I totally understand your plight, and we've had a, we had a situation in Los Angeles like that. And what I would encourage you to do is to um, leverage the existing good faith relationship that we have with that organization. They obviously, they like what you do and they trust you and you've been providing services to them for a long time. You can't turn back the clock and go back to the first meeting where I agree with Matt, the best thing to do is when you first come in to manage expectations. But where you're at now, um, I think you have to be able to have, to let them ask for a, a specific meeting, tell them you want to talk about some future plans and at that meeting say, look, we you know, love being uh, uh, working with you guys, and you know that, that we're all about the consumers and we're providing the service because it's needed, uh, but we also have budgetary pressures, and our, our people do really great work, but we don't want to lose them because they need to go somewhere else where they can actually earn some money. We want I, I understand that. <laughs> uh, well, and, and that's the point. You say, you know, they're volunteers, but we want to be able to, to retain the talent that we have, and that's going to take money. And I think what you do is you start repainting the picture, and, and this is what we had to, to do in LA, and you have to say, so we're not talking, it's not where you're saying, so from this point on, we're gonna have to start charging you. You can't really do that, it's not gonna work. But what you can say is, we would like to uh, ask you during this year, during the next 12 months, to start looking at a way where we can collaborate with you, and we're willing to participate in raising funds for, this or for your organization to to begin to um, pay for the services that we provide. So maybe we can uh, meet again in, in three months or in six months to talk about uh, you know, progress or plans to uh, how funds could be raised. Because at some point, just put it on the radar and let them know it's coming down the pike here. And that whether it's next year or no, give some kind of a time frame of at that point we really need to look at uh, receiving some compensation. That's all, that's all I'm gonna say. Uh, 
we at Arts Access and Raleigh went through this many years ago because we used to do the trip trip for free for everybody in. Our grants got cut. And so my advice to you would be hid them before, for, before they do the next year's budget so that you're giving them notice that they need to build this cost into their budget. Somebody made a comment earlier in a session. People should be building description into their budget. Well, this, you need to let them know. And if you can't do that, you know, because of your schedule, you might say, this will be our new schedule. But we realize we didn't give you enough notice, so we're going to do it for half price or, or whatever between now and then. And we did lose uh, one of the major theater uh, companies. And subsequently, we raised our rates even more, and that theater company is coming back now. So it may, you may lose somebody and may come back, but if you possibly can, give them, uh, give them some notice before they do their budget. Sign language interpreters make uh, some, you know, upwards of $600 in an evening, and there are two of them oftentimes. You know, this notion of, uh, you know, we're going to just slide on volunteer work wherever. Uh, come on, this is a professional activity. Well, this is not going to necessarily help you that much, but for the other people who are working independently as freelancers in this room, uh, I'm in a situation where I might as well be working for free, doing a lot of performances, but these people have been very good to me in terms of referring me elsewhere, and I'm working on building up the audience so that I can take Rick's approach to work with them to see if we can't find funding for the audio description so that I can actually make something approaching a living wage. And Mark. Um, I know, you know, just as a consumer of these things, that I always seem to hear that there's corporate sponsors on the closed captioning. Is that something that's viable for, for what we're doing too? I'm going to uh, pass this one over to Peter. Uh, I, c <coughs> I can't really speak for the the U.S. experience, but. I spent a good portion of my career in, in the advertising industry, and um, I remember when I first came into the joining AMI, and a number of people said the same thing, is why can't we go out as consumers and get people to sponsor, corporations to sponsor closed captioning, sponsor describe video like we do closed captioning. And I sort of said, you know, the reality is actually nobody pays for those sponsorships. It's one of those things where the deal is cut, where it's like you're buying X amount of ad time, and we're gonna throw in the closed captioning. So it's really a bundle, and there's not really direct revenue connected to it. Um, it's a, one of those things where it makes the advertiser look good in the, in the eyes of the viewers, but there's really no dollars changing hands for that service. And I think that's the challenge probably with described video too. It's the exact same problem. I've spoken to broadcasters about doing that when we first started like 13 years ago, and they were, nobody knows about described video, so we're not gonna do it. But one of the things that I would suggest is going to the big banks or to people that you think are advertising and spending a fair bit of money and saying, you know, at the bank, your uh, keypad, you know, like your ATM is accessible. It's got Braille on it. Why aren't you encouraging people to, you know, watch that and say, you know, this is bought, brought to you by so-and-so bank. We um, have people that are blind that are our clients and we're sponsoring this. It makes them look good. It gets a lot more description out there, and there's some funding for it. I, to me, it's one of those things, you know, they said no to me, what, 10 years ago on it, and I'm not giving up. Like, I even said to the bank, I'll do a demo 30-second spot for you. I'll do a bumper for you. 
that you can go to your client and say, okay, this is what you can use. Um, nobody's bitten yet, but one day they, they will. will. <laughs> they will. Closed captioning and audio description brought to you by, right? This is to die in Johnson about live um, live description, uh, especially related to sports. As somebody who a consumer that watches a lot of sports, it seems like televi live television on sports for a blind person has really headed tremendously downhill in the last ten years. Uh, I don't know if it's the advent of all of the graphics that provide the information on the screen for the sighted population. Therefore. The commentators don't feel like they need to tell you at all what's going on on the television show anymore. In fact, it's gotten to the point that if I have any option at all, whether it's XM satellite or my own radio or an app on my iPhone, I, I'm going to listen to live sports uh, on a radio type broadcast before I'm going to watch it on television because the television commentaries provide so little information anymore. They just tend to, to chat about not even what's going on on the screen. Uh, how, how are you, do you feel that same thing? Is there, it, how, do you, how do you blend all of the graphics in? It, it, when I talk to my sighted friends, it seems like they're almost in sensory overload uh, watching live sporting events now. I think one of the main elements, and that's a really good question because we had that come up recently. Um, I think one of the main elements is showing the emotion. So you look at if you're watching a baseball game and the pitcher walks away from the mound and he's got a really frustrated look on his face, things like that, your commentator's not going to bring that in, but an audio describer will bring that in and really enhances what you're seeing. Like when we were doing the Olympics, somebody got up on the podium and they were holding their medal to their heart and they were crying. And one of the women that is in our focus group, she says, my husband has been describing to me for 30 years, your narrator got every piece of the emotion in there so that I was crying because of the way that they described it so well. So to me, that's a little bit of the sports part of it as well. There's things there that um, do need to be described. And a lot of times it is a little bit more about the emotion or the enthusiasm as opposed to sort of the graphics, that right. sort of thing. Does that did, help? Did the woman uh, end up dumping her husband? Or? <laughs> Sorry, uh, I'll add a comment to that too, because at uh, AMI for the last three years, we've been, uh, we've been live describing uh, a number of Blue Jays baseball games. Um, and certain sports certainly lend themselves to description more than others. Some sports are just too fast. I tend to agree that you know, when you listen to a radio broadcast, it tends to do a pretty darn good job of describing what's happening. But I think the missed opportunity and why, and I think baseball is a great one. When, we, when we've done our research in, in Canada with our audience, uh, baseball is overwhelmingly, it seems to be overwhelmingly a very positive and, and, uh, uh, and really appealing sport to people in the blind community. And I think partly it's the pace of the game and there's a lot of strategy to it. And so there's, it's an easier game to follow um, uh, when you can't necessarily see the screen. And I think the missed opportunity when you're listening to the radio broadcast is, is sports are, is again, one of those social viewing opportunities. It's the kind of thing you want to get together with your friends or with your family and, and watch as a group. And when one person has to turn the radio on, you know, and have headsets on, or, or and everyone else has to sort of, you know, you're losing that real opportunity. So I, I would sort of encourage you to sort of reach out to some of the big sporting events and sort of, particularly baseball, 
And even you think any example is how can we possibly have the Canadians describing a you know American <laughs> sport? For God's sakes, we can't let them do that to us. Yeah, speaking of that, you know, all this work, you know, if you don't want to move to Canada in November, you can move to the UK where the Royal National Institute for Blind People has a whole division uh, dedicated to sports description, live sports description, which, uh, wow, uh, we just don't do that so much uh, in this country. Thank you, Matt and Rick and Peter and Diane. That was great. We could go on and on and on with all of these panels, I think. Tomorrow we'll uh, reconvene at 1 o'clock and we'll, for lunch, uh, uh, but we'll be uh, hearing a wonderful presentation from Rick Boggs. Uh, we'll also uh, uh, hear from Paul Saihaki of Disney Pixar. Uh, we're going to do our awards. We've got all kinds of good stuff uh, happening tomorrow. So 1 o'clock back here tomorrow. Thanks.